everybody. Um, welcome to the weekly meeting of the ERA committee. Um, the, uh, we're quoted so we are, and by looking at the participants online, I think we're, um, we have the appropriate numbers. Um, okay, members, just want to remind you that uh, keep your um, microphones on mute uh, until you need to speak, as all background noises and conversations will be heard. And if you have any uh, issues you want to raise, just uh, do it through the WhatsApp uh, facility that we have here for the um, committee. Um, the meeting will be broadcast throughout Parliament buildings and recorded online. And you're welcome to use your mobile devices so long as they're in airplane mode and muted at all time. The first item on my agenda here is apology. I don't have any apologies. And the second item is the chairperson's business and there are none. Um, third item is draft minutes. Uh, I want to refer members to the draft minutes from the meeting on the 16th of June, which was last week, uh, page six. And could members indicate that they are content with that there? Okay, I'm trying to see is here. Okay, got it all here. Okay. Right, thank you. And I'll sign and date those when I'm ever up again on, on Monday. Um, in terms of matters arising, which is number four on the agenda, there's a memo at page 14 from the clerk on the horse racing amendment bill. And Nick, do you want to brief the committee on this? Thank you, Chair. Just uh, very quickly, as a follow-up to the uh, briefing um, that members received last week from RAIS with regards to the scrutiny of the horse racing amendment bill, there's a, a a proposed correspondence to be sent to the department just outlining some points of clarity uh, which raised colleagues suggested that we receive from the department so if members are content um, to issue that correspondence I, I will i will send that um, this afternoon um, and just by way of follow-up to um, the discussion last week the online citizens-based call for evidence platform for the horse racing amendment bill um, is intended to go live tomorrow um, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, uh, members, we're going to move on now to item five on our agenda. It's an oral briefing from the NA Meat Exporters Association, and I want to um, refer members to the, the written briefing. And I want to welcome by Starleaf, uh, Connell Donnelly, the Executive Director of NAMEA, uh, uh, Sarah Hare, the Head of Agriculture, Don Meats, uh, Dunbia. Dean Holroyd, the Group Technical Sustainability Director, ABP Food Group. And I'd like to uh, invite the representatives to brief the committee and then members will then uh, ask uh, ask questions. So you're very welcome this morning. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you very much, Declan. Um, uh, I'm Conor Donnelly. I'm the Chief Executive of the Meat Exporters Association and, and some, of you, some of you will be uh, familiar with me. Um, I, I just ask quickly for um, introductions from, from Dean, sir. Okay, um, so I'll go first. Um, I'm Dean Holroyd, um, Group Technical and Sustainability Director for the ABP Food Group. Um, been in role currently for seven years. My role has, spans both red meat, our renewable energy division, pet food, and proteins. And prior to that, I've worked across in similar capacities across all food sectors. Um, very briefly, specifically ABP Northern Ireland. 
Uh, our main business is in processing beef and lamb. We have two processing sites in Newry and Lurgan, employs about 800 people. We also work with about 5,000 local farms. We also operate a couple of joint venture partnerships, one with Linden, the other with Frylight, which provides uh, circular economy solutions into a renewable energy. Um, clearly sustainability, I'm sure Sarah will say the same, sustainability is operating is core to, to this sector and at the very heart of our business, along with others in the industry committed to science-based targets. And again, specifically in Northern Ireland, um, um, we're the business climate champion working with business in the community. Probably just two last things to say, in a wider context outside of red meat, we're involved in many red meat forums, Sarah might elaborate on some of those, but we also sit at the uh, industry of grocery distribution, which is in essence the top 20 companies, food manufacturing and retailing across the UK, where healthy and sustainable diets is a key area of focus. And similarly, we sit with 50 other European organizations as a member of EIT Food, along with Queen's University, when again, one of the key, one of the key six pillars is about enhancing sustainability across the entire food sector, not just in red meat. So that's a bit of context about me and my background and our business. Uh, okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we can hear Sarah. Um, Sarah, can you try again? Sarah, you might be muted. Can you hear me now, Declan? Yeah. yeah. Apologies for that. I've got too many things doing. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Sarah Hare, um, Head of Agriculture for the Door Meats Group, which um, from an online perspective is the Dunbeer Group, um, where we've got a site in, in Dungannon, um, both for abattoir and retail packing facilities. Um, so I am wearing a number of, of hats um, on the sustainability journey. I am, I am a farmer. Um, my in-laws farm on the side of Divis, so um, the accent might belie my interest in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm also chair of the UK Cattle Sustainability Group, which is a multi-stakeholder platform trying to understand the challenge and drive change in the sector, um, looking at sustainability across a number of pillars, environmental, ethical and economical. Um, that links into a wider European platform, which uh, both AVP and ourselves are involved with, um, the European Roundtable of Beef Sustainability. Again, trying to navigate our way through some of the challenges that uh, this um, this currently um, possesses for us. So I think um, we have a, a wealth of expertise between Dean and myself and Connell. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, put this into context today. Okay. Uh, thanks, sir. Um, Chair, this, this, this uh, opening statement will take probably about 12 minutes, um, so um, I hope you can uh, bear with me. Um, so we are grateful to the committee um, for giving us the opportunity to give evidence today. Um, I have to say it would, it would have been better had there been a consultation on this, on this bill uh, before it was laid and a formal impact assessments were available. Nonetheless, uh, we hope you find the evidence that we provide today useful. Uh, Nimia, uh, just a bit of background, uh, we represent the red meat processing sector, our members employ directly uh, uh, more than 5,000 workers in factories in Northern Ireland, uh, either usually on the ban, near Lurgan, Coleraine or west of the ban. Um, they support the activities of about 23,000 farmers and our family farms have amongst the, the lowest emissions per kilo of, of beef and sheep in the world, about two and a half times lower than the global average. We're not complacent. Um, we are clear about the need to minimise emissions in the industry and also about the need for legislation 
And today we're going to explain the actions that we're taking as an industry to reduce our carbon footprint, our inability uh, to meet the net zero targets in this bill and the impact on farming and the economy and food security that would flow from this, the evolving science of measuring carbon emissions and the risks associated with policy making on the basis of accounting principles, carbon accounting principles that are contested and applied differently in different countries, and how the combined impact of this bill and the UK trade policy, the current UK trade policy, would be the decimation of our industry without really delivering any reduction in global emissions. So in Northern Ireland, um, where much of our land is unsuitable for arable farming, but has excellent conditions for grass growth, pasture-based farming is the primary agricultural enterprise with room and life of converting non-edible grass to high-quality protein. We have 1.6 million cattle on the ground here and 2 million sheep. And last year, our members produced enough beef and lamb to feed 10 million and 2 million UK consumers, respectively, um, on beef and lamb. 80% of our production goes to the UK, so it is logical to look at this on a kind of UK-wide basis. Um, the livestock sector generates greenhouse gas emissions. We accept that. And we embrace our responsibility to address this. And, and it, it's in the interest of the environment, it's in the interest of the economy and society, but it's also in the interest of our own interest, uh, industry. Um, we have a self-interest in resolving this problem. Agricultural emissions are largely caused by natural processes, and therefore they're difficult to treat. But it must be recognised that you can't produce food and completely eliminate emissions. However, we want to reduce and eliminate emissions as far as possible. So we have undertaken significant work, our members have undertaken significant work at factory level to reduce emissions. They're operating carbon neutral operations uh, using carbon efficient technology. They're eliminating waste and using uh, renewable energy, such as anaerobic digesters, to power their plants and return excess electricity to the grid. Making progress in farm is far more challenging due to the extremely fragmented beef and sheep supply chain we have in Northern Ireland. However, progress has been made through the Greenhouse Gas Implementation Partnership, through the Efficient Farming Cuts Greenhouse Gas Programme, and we are starting from a good position. Under that programme, DERA and industry have undertaken numerous research and knowledge transfer projects, coupled with grant-aided investment in carbon-efficient technology on farm. Meanwhile, members have independently established um, their own dedicated supply chains with carbon audits conducted um, uh, with participant producers. Now, this isn't across the whole industry, but there are, uh, in, in, these, in these dedicated supply, uh, supply schemes, there are carbon uh, reduction targets in place for, for the farms that are participating. In addition, our members are promoting soil testing, reduced nitrogen fertilizer, zero till farming, and, and, and slurry injection application, and, and improved grassland management, and, and improved efficiency. And also BVD eradication, which is a really important contributor to reducing uh, climate change, and we've made fantastic progress in Northern Ireland in this, but it, it's questionable whether it's, it's captured, all of that benefits captured in the inventory, and we'll come on to that later. Our plan is to urgently measure and set emissions reduction targets for all farms. NIMIA have provided the LMC with additional funding to its quality assurance scheme with the purpose of measuring carbon emissions on all FQS farms. Work is currently ongoing to implement this programme. It is also intended that industry and government will jointly invest in a livestock genetics programme, which would drive emissions through genetics, genomics and breeding. And a soil testing and management programme also has the potential to drive significant progress. And, and these are recommendations that we have made uh, to the uh, to, to, to DERA with respect to agricultural policy. And I think you actually have 
chair our, our, our proposals on that, which are heavily focused on sustainability and reducing greenhouse gases. If we can improve our efficiency and use our grass more effectively, the net consequence of that is that we can use less land and require less emissions to produce the same amount of output. That's what productivity is all about. Um, by doing that, our suppliers can free up less productive land for tree planting, rewilding, and biodiversity projects, for example. But Net Zero is a, is a policy proposal for Northern Ireland that, that should and couldn't be supported. And let me outline why, firstly, by exploring the impact of, of this private member's bill. The ability for members, or for, sorry, for different countries uh, uh, to meet net zero targets is heavily de uh, dependent on, number one, how emissions are measured, number two, the structure of their economy, and number three, their natural geography. Some countries can do it more easily than others, like Scotland, with vast swathes on, on, on farmed land. Others, like ourselves in Northern Ireland, cannot do it without massive economic harm. And it's wrong to put targets and legislation that cannot be achieved based on all of the available evidence. We're all taught that targets should be smart, and Northern Ireland uh, net zero is not a smart target because it's not attainable. Um, industry ourselves have commissioned, in, in the absence of, of a, an impact assessment, we have commissioned one ourselves, and on the, addition, uh, on the basis of some provisional findings, in order to meet the net zero target, livestock numbers would likely need to fall by as much as 85% based on currently available mitigation techniques. And I think that's broadly in line with the views of the uh, CCC. So the question I would have for the, for the, for the bill sponsors and, and the co-sponsors are, what is to be proposed when the targets aren't met? And is a call of the majority of ruminant livestock to be proposed? And have the consequences of that being thought through? Directly and indirectly, our, our food sector, the overall food sector in Northern Ireland, sustains 113,000 jobs. And the ruminant sector represents about 50% of industry turnover. So consider the impact on rural employment of 85% of the ruminant livestock on our farms has to be removed. Our industry directly underpins tens of thousands of jobs in farm shops, veterinary practices, feed mills, coal stores, haulage, machinery dealers, tradesmen, construction supplies, and public services as well, like Deira, Caffrey, and Afby. These jobs are mainly rural. Many are west of the ban, where providing replacement jobs would be most difficult. In terms of food security, we should also bear in mind that climate change will be making the challenge of feeding the global population even greater. Globally, the FAO forecasts that beef demand is expected to rise by 65% by 2050, and lamb demand by 92% globally. With a temperate climate, skilled farmers, abundant water, and grass supplies, do we not have an obligation to use our resources sustainably to feed a growing population? The impact of this bill would be that instead of being able to supply 10 million UK consumers with beef, we would be barely able to supply Northern Ireland consumers. The cost is significant economic harm. But what is the benefit? Uh, Colin Breen's recent evidence showed that the marginal benefit of straying from the very stretching CCC advice and implementing a net zero target would be an additional 0.73% contribution to overall UK emissions targets. Now, this is negligible in UK terms, never mind global terms, but it's really what counts. Now, don't read this as an argument to do nothing because we're small. This is an argument to recognise that the economic and societal cost of reaching net zero versus a more realistic target is unacceptable, given the tiny additional benefit in global terms and the brutal cost in terms of food security in the local economy. The effective implementation of climate legislation depends on being able to measure it properly. 
However, there are major questions about carbon accounting principles that underpin the measurement. The scientific basic basis for carbon measurement is evolving and it's uncertain. The risk is that our industry is devastated on the basis of policy driven by today's carbon accounting principles and conjunction with this bill, but these will change in the future. So there's major questions around, number one, using standardised figures to calculate the inventory. That means that the good work going on in terms of efficiency may not be captured in the inventory or may take years to be recognised. Accounting for the carbon sequestration of uh, potential of grassland is another issue. A third issue is measuring emissions on the basis of nutrient benefit rather than a sort of a basic per kilo of output. And finally, an important one is accounting for the biogenic methane emissions, which are a flow gas. And arising from these debates, countries are taking different approaches to measuring livestock emissions. And this has implications for a level playing field in international trade. I want to draw attention to New Zealand, for example, where the Carbon Amendment Bill makes a distinction between livestock or biogenic methane emissions and emissions arising from fossil extraction. The New Zealand legislation recognises that biogenic emissions are part of a, bio, a biological cycle. These so-called flow gases are removed at a much past, faster pace from the atmosphere than so-called stock gases caused by fossil fuel extraction. The science says that because biogenic methane emissions are cycled in the atmosphere, once in equilibrium, livestock methane can continue to be emitted at a stable rate without increasing the concentration in the atmosphere. In other words, as long as numbers are stable, livestock numbers are stable, they are not causing additional warming. So based on this science, the New Zealand legislation aims to reduce emissions of fossil methane together with other greenhouse gases to net zero, but they've made an exception for biogenic methane. And that's where the GWP star versus GWP 100 debate comes in, and the Irish bill has referenced the same science. Unless a similar approach is taken here, the Northern Ireland ruminant livestock industry will be substantially downsized, and there will be a major opportunity for New Zealand to replace Northern, Northern Ireland outputs in the markets where we compete, particularly once a New Zealand trade deal is agreed. This creates a significant level playing field issue if this bill is, is, is passed in its current form. So the recent deal between Australia and the UK is also worth considering. The Australian beef industry has been given a quota equivalent to almost three quarters of a million slaughtered cattle uh, to the UK market and nearly eight million sheep. This beef quota is greater than the entire Northern Ireland annual kill. In fact, it's you know heading for double that, and the sheep access is you know again almost twenty times Northern Ireland output. It's huge. So now consider that Northern Ireland, or sorry, that Australia does not have a net zero target, and even even were it to adopt one in the future, there is no guarantee that that would restrict its ability to serve the UK market. Again, going back to the question of measurement, and depending on how emissions are measured, it is therefore entirely possible that a combination of this legislation and the Australian FTA would result in our beef and lamb being displaced in the UK market and even in the tiny local market by Australian product. Now, I listened to Claire Hanna of the SDLP yesterday on Talkback and she spoke of the lack of logic in importing red meat thousands of miles across the globe to the UK given our climate obligations. Claire Hanna was absolutely right. But the point is that trade is a reserve matter and the assembly is no part of change UK trade policy and protect us in that regard. However, it can protect our, our farmers by ensuring that the climate change bill does not result in the decimation of the livestock sector and the economic impact that would flow from that. Looking at it more deeply, and when we consider that per kilo of, of protein produced, ruminant emissions in Western Europe 
are the lowest in the world. We can see how just how incoherent these two policy positions are when you put them together. Gleam statistics from the FAO show that cattle emissions uh, per kilo of output uh, from Oceania are 54% higher than emissions in Western Europe, while emissions from sheep are 10% higher. Assuming Oceania uh, levels are representative of Australian emissions and Western European emissions are representative of Northern Ireland emissions, it shows that the impact of this bill would actually be increased. Global carbon emissions from UK beef consumption are rising from reduced Northern Ireland production and increased imports. And this is before you consider what uh, Claire Hannah said yesterday about the cost, the carbon cost of transporting that meat from the other side of the world. This would be a staggering outcome from a policy intended to reduce uh, global emissions. And to add insult to injury, and this is a really key point, the nature of current carbon accounting means that the emissions from Australian and New Zealand imports or any imports into the UK market don't even show up on the UK greenhouse gas inventory. However, emissions from Northern Ireland production obviously do, and this is an intolerable situation. So if the Assembly passes this bill, we would argue that it would be complicit in exacerbating these Brexit-related impacts, and it will be decimating our industry, which is well ahead, starting off well ahead of international competitors, who will see this bill as a fantastic opportunity to replace us in the UK market. You need to make sure that doesn't happen, because it's not in the interest of your constituents, it's not in the interest of our economy, the food security, or the environment. And I, I think what we've demonstrated here is that only coordinated global action will address climate change. Uncoordinated action by small countries, and in this case, regions of small countries, will make negligible difference to the entire issue, and in fact, could actually be counterproductive. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you, Jack Connell. Um, very wide-ranging and informative uh, presentation about the on the impacts, um, potential impacts. Um, and I do believe, uh, well, I can say we certainly um, we, we we share the concerns that that you have raised, obviously. And the important thing is that uh, this call for evidence, that, which we have done as part of scrutinising this private members' bill, is to give an opportunity to listen to people like yourselves uh, on to hear directly from yourselves on the potential impact that this uh, could have uh, on on the industry. And obviously, you know, the as you know, this is a framework bill. You know, um, this the time this bill uh, concludes, there may well be amendments uh, which may address some of the impacts that you have uh, highlighted there, Connell. You know, um, for, you know, for example, around carbon leakage, for example, and certainly I can completely see the logic of of dragging uh, of importing meat from ten thousand miles away in the far side of the globe. How that would be just be the complete um, contradiction of of climate uh, change. Uh, Commitments, so uh, I think I think that's that, that's that's important. Those those points uh, that you have made. Um, see, uh, I just want to just because um, there, there's, there's quite a bit that you that you mentioned there. You, you mentioned the um, in the in the south of Ireland, the Irish the Irish bill. You, you mentioned that there, um, Connell. Um, see the fact that the south um, is working towards a twenty a twenty fifty target. Um, and um, and uh, and it suggested that we in the north should work towards a less ambitious target, you know, eighty-two uh, percent by by twenty by twenty fifty. 
Um, given the fact that the island, um, a lot of the food is processed across the island of Ireland, do you see any difference in terms of, you know, um, um, access and international markets if some of the food, some of the products is produced uh, in one part of the island at a, with a different um, climate change sort of legislation or, or, or targets? Is it, do, you th- do you envision any difference? And some of the the, the figures that you have presented at Stark with 25, 85% cut to livestock, um, if, 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 you know, if, if the bill wasn't amended in some way. And I just want to know, like, we, we aren't sort of picking up that sort of shocking statistics from the south of Ireland, which, which is, which is, we share the same landmass, the same types and same challenges and the same, you know, similar, but we're not hearing that type of shocking statistics from the south, you know, rather we're see, we're looking at the, 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 the marginal abatement cost curve. We're not hearing Chagas saying those things that so that a stark is out there. So I'm just wondering, do, do you see any merit in, um, you know, uh, any sort of um, challenges that, that you'd have two different legislations on both parts of the same island, given that the food is produced across all of the island? Um, I think, well, I think, I think, I think there's a couple, a, 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 there's quite a bit there. And, and what, what I'll try to do is bring, um, uh, and Dean in to pick up on parts of it as well and I mean to start with just the implications of um, having a different approach in terms of international trade um, I suppose um, you know our, our current uh, our, our, our current situation is that in terms of international trade the competent authority for international trade is the UK when uh, we, we, we do a trade agreement uh, with somewhere else in the world um, and and we are keen on international trade, and we are very very focused on our reputation. Um, we, however, when it comes to international trade, we will be abiding by um, uh, you know UK climate uh, climate targets. We will be um, we actually do agree that there needs to be climate legislation in Northern Ireland. We support that, um, and 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 we will be playing our part. Um, I, I don't see I don't see uh, um, any contradiction in, in, in what we're saying in our ability then to to, to, to access uh, third country markets or indeed customers. Um, um, I might I might actually at this point because I've talked a lot. I might at this point bring Sarah or, or Dean in um, if, if you'd like to. So, uh, just a couple of comments on that. So, so uh, clearly at this juncture, um, the, the Irish government ROI have not debated the thorny topic of sectoral targets. So how does that national ambition break down for sort of individual industries? There, there's certainly been a lot of commentary that in order to achieve them, um, given the way things are currently measured, ROI, again, would have to undertake a significant call. Might not be as high as 85%, but certainly numbers north of 50% have been uh, referenced so equally as as devastating, and a lot of the arguments that Connell would have outlined equally apply to our to ROI in terms of their current starting position, in terms of their footprint amongst the lowest in the world, north and south, very very similar dynamics. But one of the key differences that I think at present is that uh, the government in the South have recognized this whole issue around methane accounting, around biogenic uh, emissions, around sequestration, and as 
I can't remember the exact phraseology, but it's been given sort of special status such that when the, I guess, accounting principles catch up with the, the, the worldview of climate science, then those impacts shouldn't be as need to be as draconian. I think it also recognizes that there is significant potential efficiency to be gained as there is in the north, as there is in GB from the current footprint, which means you don't necessarily have to compromise output, drive efficiency, create great elements of land that can be reapportioned and get a scientific opinion on uh, short-lived greenhouse gas gases as opposed to the nonsense of converting them to CO2 equivalent. Um, yeah. Um, okay. And so I just want to just get back to this again. So g given the fact that, you know, that, you know, as a consequence of, uh, of Brexit, that there's actually a, probably an onus on us to work across the island and we're moving, we're, we're pushing hard to get the North included in the PGA for uh for 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 Irish grass-fed beef and i noted and then our next contributors beef the dairy council they've been down in the Arctis last week arguing for the uh for for um the, the milk across island to be treated as uh not as as mixed origin milk but the same milk to enable us to access uh eu deals you know surely if for arguing on an island-wide basis to benefit our beef because what i've noted from Correspondence got from the minister recently that beef for the PGA is twenty percent more value, and we're arguing for a single pool of milk across the island around for it not to be differentiated across the whole of the island. Uh, and I even noted that that other competitors were actually trying to undermine milk from the island of Ireland because it uh, because it's been with mixed origin. And how, how is it logical then to be arguing for different uh, climate change bills in both parts of the island? And I did notice in recent months, actually, the president of the Irish Farmers Association in South Africa says it was scaremongering to, to, to suggest such huge amounts of cuts to livestock. Um, but in actual fact, that would happen have we not, if we don't put measures in place over the course of the next number of years. What, what's the logic of having two separate measures on, on the one island if, if, we're, if we're trying to sort of move forward together, you know, to, to make the benefit across the globe? Yeah, I, I want to. I just want to address, um, I suppose, the, the, the latter point first, um, if, if, if that's okay. Um, if that's okay, Declan. Right. Yeah. There's a. I mean, there is. This this is a very difficult. You know, it's a very difficult subject because an awful lot of an awful lot of industry, an awful lot of countries, want to say, yeah, we can do this because, um, you know, it's a, it's an absolutely brilliant thing to be able to say, yeah, we can do that zero. Um, but it's it's not just as simple as that. Um, so you know, out out in the out out in the um, in the there's a lot of concern that if you say you can't do it, that you know the, the consequences of that are are going to be that you 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 you're you're putting your hand up for um, for livestock reductions. And I don't I, I I think we want to be upfront and we want to say to be very clear about the implications of this legislation that. It would mean net zero in Northern Ireland would mean substantial reductions in livestock, and we need to we need to be upfront about that and discuss the consequences of it. Because I think I think that's you know it, 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 we shouldn't run away from it, and we, we we should be clear 
as well about the difficulties that are then around measurement. Um, and, and this is, a, as, as Dean says, this is a question for both North and South, um, you know, this question of measurement. It is, I mean, Dean has mentioned that, you know, the, the, the Republic is addressing the question of biogenic methane in its, um, in its uh, legislation. Now, it's addressed it by saying, for the purposes of performing their respective functions under this uh, section, the Minister and the Government will have regard to the special and economic and social role of agriculture, including with regard to the distinct characteristics of biogenic methane. The Advisory Council should carry out its functions under this section in a manner which takes account of the relevant scientific advice, including with regard to the dis distinct characteristics of biogenic methane. So you could have a target, um, you, can have, you, can have, you can have different legislations, and our legislation will not be the exact same as, 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 as the South. But nuances can make an extremely big difference in your ability to actually meet those targets. And, you know, having the scope then uh, to, uh, as the New Zealanders do, uh, to, to treat livestock emissions differently makes a huge difference. And, and that's the point. We could end up uh, with the wrong approach here with a, a level playing field issue north and south where we're significantly disadvantaged. Um, I don't know if there's anything um, that Sarah or, or, or Dean would like to add to that. Yes, um, if, if I can. Um, and I think it comes down to that biogenic methane discussion. It's not just about methane, it's about treating the gas, the short-lived gases very differently um, and rather than lumping them all under the same same umbrella. But it's looking at the, the opportunity as well with, with livestock that we, we do have this whole question around carbon sequestration um, to, to build in that might have an actual positive impact over time. But we're not quite there yet with the, the science. And I think having a... a, a a bill that talks about um, sort of a broad sweeping statement without taking that into consideration at this stage could have um, unintended consequences long term because, as you say, people are jumping on the it's going to have a negative impact on the, the livestock sector when actually we could be part of the solution. Um, but, but making that, that broad statement now is um, probably quite damaging to the, the journey that we're all on and have been on for um, at least 10, 10 years or so in, in, in um, our case on trying to, to look at this whole topic. So are you saying they're making a broad statement of s severe livestock cuts could be damaging to the the, the, the no, no, sorry. What I mean is a broad statement about climate net zero. Oh, um, without, without taking that into consideration on, on livestock could be quite damaging. So, before I move around here, would, would would yourselves as a group be suggesting that that's something that could be looked at as opposed to uh, in this bill here, which is a framework bill, the near remind is looking at the, the, the biogenic nature of methane, is that something do you think would be worthwhile to be part of the, the final bill? Yeah, could I, could I come in there? I, 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 absolutely, because this, this is where accounting global accounting principles have not caught up with with science and this this whole gwp star which which is determined around treating short-lived uh, pollutants i.e things that will decayed after 10 years differently to long-lived pollutants methane would be one of those as opposed to long-lived pollutants co2 which lasts for thousands of years in the atmosphere you know th this this isn't livestock scientists or meat processing scientists this is globally recognized climate experts who probably know very little about agriculture, but they, you know, they come out of the center of international environment, climate research in Europe, um, Oxford's oceanic and planetary physics, uh, 
University of California, and this is getting you know increasing recognition within the scientific community about its validity and how robust it is in being able to differentiate the contribution to global warming of short-lived pollutions versus long-lived pollutions. The one, the one thing I suppose I would add to that is that um, you know there's a it takes time. I mean, I think the IPCC are, are are looking at this at the moment, but the IPCC have looked at other things in the past and the impact on how the inventory is managed. So I think I think the the, the point will be around around how peatlands and um, 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 are, are are measured uh, on the land use side and. There was a determination made in that maybe ten or twelve years ago, but it's only uh, impacting on the on the um, on the inventory now. The concern, I suppose, that that we would have is that this is a framework bill, but this framework bill will drive policy. Although, what's the otherwise? What's the point of having it? So, if the inventory uh, doesn't uh, catch up with the science quickly enough, the policy implications flowing from this bill could be damaging. And they could have done the damage by the time the measurement is is resolved. I think that's a really important point, Daka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Just while we're on this this point around measurement, w- w- one further thing that I think is worthy of consideration is this: you know, where does the where where does uh, the measurement of sequestration sit, and uh, who owns that sequestration? Because for me, it's, it's just it would be morally wrong that, that a farmer, you know, has to carry the burden of the emissions of his of his farming entity, but correspondingly can't can't uh, access the benefit of uh, the sequestration that the land that he farms and owns, the hedgerows that he farms and owns, the trees that he farms and owns. Um, those two things have to work hand in glove. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of me made a move around the room here, but I couldn't agree more with you on that point because certainly the point that I made, I think it was last or two weeks ago at the meeting, there's so much mixed messages coming out for farmers. Farmers are being told on one hand, this is devastating, you're going to have to cut your livestock by 50, 85%. And then on the other hand, we're hearing from other experts that there are many farms, particularly in marginal areas, that are already carbon neutral. So there needs to be, farmers need to, a means to work out what their baseline is, to know what they might have to do. And in some cases, farmers may already be there, you know, so I think that there's a piece of work to be done there. But listen, I'm hogging the meeting here, so I'm, I'm going to have to move around the room here. So, Patsy, Malone, Patsy? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, and I find this very interesting. Um, in your presentations, you've raised for me definitely a number of questions, and maybe it's straight back at you. Um, you're questioning the science, right? Uh, and I hear that, and I, I represent a rural area. Um, many of my friends, family, etc., are, are involved in the, the agri-food sector, for want of a better word, farming and that, and I, I hear entirely where you're coming from. If you're questioning the, as I'm picking up, the validity of the science where we are contemporarily, uh, what science have you yourselves as an industry, either globally or whatever, to um, challenge that? Um, now, I'm hearing a lot of questions from you, and if we're going the route of the issues of uh, sequestration and we're going the issue of biogenic methane, um, I'm hearing that, and I would I would want to be supportive of measures to do that, but 
can can you advise me what science you have in support of that thrust? Now, I'm also, uh, I have to say, I would agree with my party colleague on this. You referred to it earlier, Connell, there. It's really daft for me to hear of a trade deal which involves huge amounts of travel from the lower end of the world uh, to, and that's not taken into account. That is really, really daft. Um, a trade deal with no tariffs and all that sort of stuff, which is going to equally jeopardize the trade from here. And you're referring to, I think, 80%. You referred to earlier there, Connell. Um, that's really going <clears> to, <throat> that's a huge challenge as well. We're talking about the challenges of uh, climate change and uh, adaptation measures to that. That's a huge challenge as well. So my fundamental question is, we're looking at legislation. We're hearing the science. We're hearing, in this instance, the impact of agri-food on climate change and those. We're trying to work our way through this. In terms of those biogenic emissions and the sequestration, the science that you have in support of measures to go that route, that's that's what I'm looking for. And, and I, I, I bring the guys in on this very quickly. Firstly, you know, the, the science the science is there. I mean, it's it's uh, we're actually we're 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 not contesting that this is a it's a contested area in terms of it's a it's an area where the science is evolving. Um, it's it's not a it's it's it, it, there's there's a the, the science is evolving and so is the measurement is evolving. And I, I think I think that's the key point. Um, so. You know, I maybe I maybe hand over to, to to Dean maybe just to go through the science because he referenced he, he referenced um, he referenced where the science is from. Okay, uh, I I think I'd headline this by saying you know you know what what what, what science have we got uh, as an industry? Well, the science we've got as an industry is is drawing upon that global science from these leading these leaders in climate science. And, and I think that brings with it independent strength and independent validation. Um, so if you want supporting evidence around why methane, in essence, is over-accounted for and contributes very little to, or nothing to global warming, if you have a static level in the atmosphere, then uh, you know there are no end of peer repute review papers. There's Dr. Miles Allen, Dr. Michelle Kane out of Oxford University School of Climate Science, Dr. Frank Mitlona at the University of California. I can't remember the guy's name at the um, uh, Center for Inter International Environment and Climate Research in Norway. But these guys are climate scientists. Yeah, they, 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 what, they, they work in, in, in institutions which looks at the physics of how methane breaks down over 10 years in the atmosphere, whereas CO2, you know, the CO2 that's been generated now is adding to the CO2 that was generated a thousand years. So they're cumulative, they're those stock gases, whereas the methane that's being generated now, assuming that we've got a static herd, is only replacing that methane that's biodegraded from 10 years ago. So, a long answer, but the short answer to your question is, I, I don't think you should be looking for that climate science from us. I think we're the last people you should be looking for it from. You should be looking for it, and it exists in abundance from those climate experts. No, sorry, all I was throwing out was an invite there. You made, you made an argument, and I'm trying to find validation, scientific validation for 
for that argument, and I thought maybe it was giving the opportunity to read your I've got no review papers that I'm happy yeah. to send to you, but they won't be generated by ABP. They'll be generated by these these experts. Um, all, all I'm looking at is that specific issue around the biogenic methane, and if if there are mitigations or measures that can be put in place to look at that separately. You, you referenced um, New Zealand earlier, and I'm just trying to get the nature of the science upon which that is based. Um, that's all. But uh, you, you've mentioned a few there. If those can be held, I'm sure they'll be picked up by Hansard. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, Patsy. And I just add, I mean, that's, I think that's um, Dean's made the point. I mean, I, I was clumsily trying to make it to start. It's not our science. It's not, it's not, we don't yep. know that. It's, it's independent science. Okay. So, so sorry. I, 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 it, it, at the very heart of this, okay, it's, it's elementary chemistry. Okay. CO2 does not break down in the atmosphere. It hangs around for thousands of years. Hmm. And that's why any CO2 being generated now is just constantly cumulative, constantly adding. Methane CH4 breaks down into two components after 10 years. Water vapor, some of the fractions, and a tiny element of CO2, but the concentration of that CO2 is tiny relative to the global warming potential of, of methane. So actually, whilst we say a static herd, we actually need to be reducing methane emissions by 3% every 10 years so it doesn't contribute to global warming. So 0.3% per annum. And just following on from, and again, anything we're making here that would be based on, okay, our heart may take us one direction, but based on the science, and we can't predict what science might be in 10 years' time or five years' time, whatever, just working on the decision of the science is now. Uh, following through on that, what other mitigation measures can be taken by the farming community to offset that um, 3%, I think you said, Dave? Over 10 years, yeah, 0.3% per annum. Uh -huh. what, what, what mitigation measures can be made practically on farms or indeed by, by the wider industry to offset that or okay. to, to reduce it, I should say? Okay. So can I come in there? Because I think one thing we would absolutely want to come across here is that there is an opportunity because there is opportunity. There's significant opportunity to drive improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's significant opportunity to drive improvement on genetics. So breeding animals that eat less, grow faster, can be slaughtered at an earlier age, and therefore are generating less methane emissions. And dawned ourselves, we would have done numerous activities. We ourselves have got our two demonstration farms where elite genetics can reduce the age of slaughter and, and reduce methane emissions by about 40% versus the national average. So this is actually happening now? Yeah. Yeah. And there are, okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, maybe, Sarah, you, you referred to just shared just one final question. Sarah's direction, you, you referred to belonging to a group of uh, a sustainable farming group. Uh, can, can you maybe advise the practical measures again that, that are developing there at that level by that group? Yeah, sure. And um, it, it comes down to that there are a huge number of practices that farmers can do to to help support this journey to, to improve improving our climate. But it's 
and, and I think um, Declan made reference to it, it's a very confusing space. Um, in one hand, you can look at genetics. One hand, you can look at feed, and there's there's novel feed additives that we're we're looking at seaweeds and things like that to reduce methane in in the rumen. Um, we're we're looking at the genetics piece. We're also looking at the meat quality piece because there's that nutrient density conversation that Connell read, referenced earlier that 100 grams of spinach and 100 grams of beef. I, I know what I would prefer to eat, to be honest. Um, but the group we I'm I'm chairing at the moment is working under the Global Roundtable of Sustainable Beef, um, which is trying to have a a strong narrative, driving under four key pillars. So we've got pillars around the environment, we've got pillars around um, animal health and welfare, we've got a pillar on animal medicines, and a pillar on the the farm. Um, We've called it farm management, but it's around the the economic drivers because you can't take any one of these things in isolation um, because they all have unintended consequences. I use that phrase again on on a number of things. So we want to have healthy animals and the whole animal medicines debate um, has been a really live topic and been driven by industry for the last 10 or or 15 years or so and trying to A, calculate the situation, but also what can farmers do? And it's not just farmers, it's the the advisory services that go along that, the veterinary practitioners, et cetera, to actually have a joined up message. And that's exactly what the group that I'm chairing is is doing, saying that we've got four key pillars. We've got eight outcome measures, again, very much outcome based to, to say, this is where we're trying to get to. And actually, if we're all singing off the same hymn sheet, we can make incremental change with everyone talking the same language. Now, it's, it's a huge mountain to climb, don't get me wrong, there are um, there are challenges, but we've got different levers um, at our disposal, whether it be nationally through things like the, the Farm Quality Assurance Scheme or within our individual supply chains, um, as Dean alluded to, we've, we've all got projects that are, are there that are very much live and real and delivering some benefits. We've got to scale those up to, to make change. The other thing just to bring in that um, Connell mentioned earlier in its statement was about BVD. Some of the things that we are doing are not picked up into the national inventory because of the way the national inventory is calculated. And that is one of the other challenges around making um, big claims that we can't, the accountancy framework that we're working within doesn't always take in all the positive aspects of what we're doing. For example, even the way we spread slurry, um, the national inventory takes a broad statement that it's all done in one way and that slurry spreading is a challenge whereas actually we know people and farmers have invested in technology and equipment that makes me uh, slurry spreading better for both the, the, the ground and, and the atmosphere that's not always accounted for properly in national inventory so i think there's a huge conversation that needs to be had collaboratively around that topic as well chair it'd be helpful maybe if uh, that document you mentioned a document there you have four pillars and i think eight outcomes i think it'd be helpful for us to see those that document or any documentation that might be helpful to us if that's okay chair and okay with yourself there sarah okay more, more than happy Thank that's you. publicly available on the european roundtable website so Perfect. okay we can share that with you yeah. Thank, Thank you. you okay i'm gonna i'm gonna move over to county armagh here now to william william uh, okay can you hear me okay have we got you william Okay, thank you very much. Can I thank Colin and the team for their presentation? An excellent presentation. Uh, it's similar to been said by many of us for some time. Uh, in relation to the private members bill and the possible 
out working to that and the possible massive reduction in livestock numbers. Has there been a job work done to work out the possible loss, job losses in the agri-food sector? Because I presume they'd be massive if that materialised. Uh, William, uh, thanks. I, I um, we are actually. I mean, one of our frustrations with this uh, this piece of legislation is that there was no impact assessment um, before it reached the uh, assembly. Um, so it made it difficult for us to um, establish what the impact was. Um, so as I said, we we actually we have commissioned uh, work on that. Um, the figure I give you uh, give earlier in terms of the impact on livestock numbers uh, of 85 percent that that is uh, a provisional uh, figure from that impact assessment that then would be used as the basis to calculate the impact on jobs but if you look at it from the point of view of you know the contribution of 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 uh, ruminant livestock in northern ireland is huge in terms of uh, the food economy um the northern ireland uh, food and drink um, the size of performance of the Northern Ireland Food and Drink Industry report that uh, DERA does um, roughly has, 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 has that kind of ruminant sector at half of uh, the turnover of the entire industry. Now, the entire industry, um, uh, there was a, an EY report produced uh, a few months ago by industry um, to establish what the, the, the value of the industry was to the economy. In terms of jobs, that was calculated at 113,000 jobs, um, directly and indirectly. So I, I, I went through there just in the presentation all the, the you know the different ancillary services that would be uh, driven by that. I suppose the point is that if you remove um, if you remove 85 percent of half of the sector, what do you do to the job? Uh, what do you do to the jobs market uh, in in the in, in, in Northern Ireland? Um, what do you do to all those jobs? And, and the concern is, where are those jobs? They're in places where you, you know you'll not necessarily bring in um, uh, FDI, um, or um, you know they're in the provincial sort of county towns all around all around Northern Ireland. And the other important point to make is that the quality of those jobs is important. You know, there's a perception probably in the industry of the industry that it's uh, that that our jobs are you know not as high a quality. One of the important things about that report was it showed that uh, it was a third, a third, a third. A third of the jobs were, uh, you know, um, sort of lower semi-skilled. A third were skilled. A third were, you know, highly skilled slash professional. So that's a that's a really important point because, you know, we need all of those types of career options in the in the in the economy. But where are they? Uh, they're they're in places that you know. We don't necessarily have a, a city group or a um, um, or, or high tech high tech or IT businesses. They're in places, you know, in, uh, you know, Fermanagh, uh, Tyrone, West Tyrone, uh, South Armagh, places like that, and uh, and they give they give very high quality employment. And that's what we'd be. That's what we're most concerned about is that when you take the multiplier effect of this, um, so. So yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if the others have anything they'd like to add to that. In relation, in relation to the, as you're aware, the Climate Change Committee uh, was tasked with looking at the four regions of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. They brought forward recommendations uh, that they think, uh, with a push or achievable, um, 
what's your view? I mean, I, in life, I take a common sense approach to things, and I think it's very important that the, the committee and the us as MLAs take a sensible approach to this. We all want to see emissions reduced, but we want, we want to do it in a way that's not going to damage and wreck our industry. In relation to the Climate Change Committee's report, I'm sure you've looked at it closely, and do you think uh, that 82% of 2050 is achievable? Well, you know, and 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 Lord Devon was he was inter interviewed by Conor McCauley this morning on 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 Radio Ulster, and he said that um, he said that again. I think he said it to, to this committee as well, but he didn't think it was realistic. Um, you know, the th the approach that they took was basically you do your fair share as such. Um, you know, in, in Scotland, Scotland, we're given a target of 2045. And given the, you know, the, the land mass that it is and the fact that there's so much scope for forestry and, um, you know, carbon storage, you know, they were in a good position. Uh, and they welcomed that in Scotland and there was, no, there was no real issue for them and they're well on their way to it. But he recognised with the same extension that Northern Ireland, uh, you know, would really, really struggle um, uh, to do that. And, you know, you talk about what the per share is. If the UK, and the reason why you know you look at this in the UK basis, eighty percent of what we produce goes to the UK, so um, in the beef sector, and I think it's eminently reasonable to look at it on that basis. Um, but if, if if you look at the sixty four percent, I think they had uh, established would uh, of you know the agriculture would have to go for sixty four percent emissions reductions. Um, so if you you know, work on that basis that if the rest of the UK is working on the basis of going for 64% emissions reductions and Northern Ireland would going for net zero. Ultimately, agriculture pays a much higher price in Northern Ireland to achieve net zero. I mean, the real frustration with this is the, uh, uh, the way I would say it is, is Colin Breen had, had come to the committee to talk about, you know, the difference between the UK CCC recommendations and these recommendations at a, a UK level. What's the marginal benefit of going the extra step to net zero and it's 0.73 percent to the uk but you know point as well is this isn't a uk issue it's not a north south issue it's a global issue and you know in a global terms that is an even more uh you know negligible figure and i, I guess the point i was trying to make in the opening statement was you know we're looking at this from the point of view of uh you know on this kind of uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's not a question we're too small and we don't, you know. Therefore, we're not arguing that we're too small and we and we and we shouldn't have to uh, uh, go as far because we won't matter. We're not saying that. What we're actually saying is, um, let's look at the difference between a realistic target and this target, and what's the marginal gain in terms of global uh, climate targets, and what is the um, the impact, the marginal impact on our industry, and we'll, we'll bear the brunt of it, um, and, and the economy, um, and, 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 and that's the point we're making. Uh, and can I just, just one last comment, and just in relation to that, I mean, if we can achieve uh, the target that the, the, the Climate Change Committee has uh, set, it, it actually means the UK reaches net zero by 2050, so we're part of the UK, so in, in effect, by if we can if we can achieve that, we the UK actually reaches not zero and we're 
we also in small region benefits from that. Yeah, yeah look, you know, I think the point is, um, you know, um, we have to play our part. We're not, we're not, we're yeah. not suggesting for one second that we shouldn't. We're not suggesting for one second that there shouldn't be climate legislation in Northern Ireland. I understand that fully. Thank you very much. Thank you, William, and thank you, Colin. Um, and uh, Rosemary. Yep, thank you very much, and gentlemen, and Sarah, thank you very much for your presentations. presentation also. I'm, I'm from Fermanagh and South Tyrone, so obviously you can imagine the impact this will have perhaps on farmers if it's introduced on the agricultural community. I wanted to just investigate a little bit more about, you spoke about BVD eradication. Can you give me a little bit more detail on the benefits perhaps of that in relation to the what we're speaking about, climate change? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll speak about it very briefly. I mean, and, and, and then maybe uh, let Sarah come in. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we, we've made huge strides here, but we've still got work to do um, as an industry, and, and, and we've all played our part, farmers in particular. Um, I think what it does is the, the, the primary benefit is that it takes unproductive uh, cattle off the ground that are, um, you know, suffering from bovine viral diarrhea, and therefore, you know, they're not they're not performing well. They're they're a lot of them stay on the ground and are eventually uh, they're eventually you know they maybe die before they reach productive age. Um, they infect all those around them, and um, and even if they do reach productive age, they they they're not they're not finished. Unfortunately, they're not um, you're not you, they're 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 not good value for the emissions that they emit, and. Um, and because we have, have managed to um, eradicate a lot of the BVD, there's still, there's still BVD there, don't get me wrong, um, but uh, because we have managed to make huge progress on that, um, it's that emissions intensity that we have improved. And, and maybe, Sarah, maybe you'd like to add to that. Yeah, I think you've, you summed it up pretty well. It's about having healthy animals on farm because healthy animals perform efficiently, and we know we can do more with that, with genetics and stuff, but BVD is one of those national challenges that, that yeah if you have a sick animal on farm it, it it contributes more methane and and other gases to the to the the challenge um and every animal that we have that's sick in any way shape or form um that is not performing to its optimal standards is is on farm longer and ultimately um yeah em emitting more so uh, bvd just one of the examples where we've worked collectively as an industry to solve a challenge um, and it's probably one of the best examples that we, we have at the moment, but there's a number of other initiatives going on um, with other other challenges like that. Mm -hmm. Yep, uh, thank you, That's that clarifies that. Um, I want to take a look at the pollutants in relation to the methane, the short-lived pollutants and the long-lived pollutants. I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head here in relation to the concerns of climate change. Um, it's the short-lived pollutants, you know, the amount of animals that uh, we keep on our farms and the, um, and perhaps the changes that may have to be introduced to meet the requirements of a climate change bill. How can we make more, or how can we um, 
Is there is there more work needed in relation to discovering the discovering the benefits there are from these short lived pollutants such as methane gas, and separating it from the long lived pollutants such as carbon? I think maybe Dean, maybe you want to come back on that. Um, yes. So uh, you know, it, it is going to be all around driving efficiency at farm level, and and this is a classic area where economic and environmental efficiency work hand in hand. So you know, there are numerous examples that healthy that BAVD piece about healthy animals will be efficient animals. So um, uh, there are various studies going on around um, uh, of actually capturing methane emissions um, from animal physical measurements as opposed to just using various factors. And invariably, they're all pointing to start with superior genetics, good quality feed, high health status, various different pasture types will result in animals reaching slaughter, specifically beef animals and sheep animals, achieving slaughter age at a younger age. And therefore, over their lifespan, the physical amount of emissions that they've emitted is significantly less, up to 40% in some instances. Um, and that actually starts contributing to global cooling. Because over time you're reducing, you know, we're back on this. If there's a fixed level of methane in the atmosphere, so for every molecule that's generated, one's decaying from 10 years ago. If you start reducing that, you can actually start contribute to global cooling. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I I understand that. And. Um, one one other question I was I actually am concerned about up there is the trade deal. Of course, that's been done with Australia in relation to agriculture here in Northern Ireland and in particular our beef producing. Uh, is, does that not work contrary to what we are trying? Is that not something in contrast to what we're trying to produce? We're trying to are tr trying to work towards we're trying to work towards a sensible climate change bill and yet we're yet we're importing beef and the cost that that will be to the climate change can can i have a go at starting on that um connell and then you come in I, 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 we all share that frustration right so so and, and apologies i'm going to state the obvious here but but for a nation that can't, and I'm talking this in a UK context, okay? But for a nation that can't feed itself, it's only somewhere between 60 and 70% self-sufficient, depending on what sector you're talking to. Reducing domestic output on marginal land that's unfit for anything else, and then topping up through import that deficit from nations that have got a much higher footprint, that is just madness. Yeah. So, 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 Dean, there. Do you see then? Um, would you think then it would be important then that the um, the bill could be amended, for example, to have a clause in it to prevent that type of carbon leakage? Can I? Just, just add one more thing. thing because, because the irony. I mean, this is the, the 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 irony of all of this. Yeah, is that for some of those other nations, yeah, to reduce their carbon footprint. 
you know, they potentially should be importing from the British Isles because we start from a position of 40% of the footprint of the global average. Sorry, soapbox done. <laughs> well, like, spot on, spot on. Like, like, I suppose the, the point I would make to you, Declan, on the carbon leakage, that would be brilliant if we had any influence over, uh, if the Assembly had any influence over UK trade policy. But you don't. And as long as you don't, the only thing that you can do with respect to this is actually give us legislation that we can use, uh, that, that works for us as an industry. And that also takes into account the evidence that we have presented today, which is, you know, um, supported by independent uh, uh, independent uh, climate experts with respect to, uh, to, to meeting. But, I mean, it, you know, on top of that, I mean, when you, when you, you have to look at the two areas of policy together. You can't look at them in isolation. I mean, there is this, you know, we see, we see for example, this concept of, uh, you know, reduced consumption uh, being mentioned. Um, but it's not consistent. It's not coherent when you look at it in conjunction with what the UK is pursuing in terms of, of, of trade policy. I have to be very, very clear about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, folks, I need to rush around the room here because our next witnesses are waiting on us. Claire? Thanks very much. Can you hear me okay? Yes, Claire. Thanks. Um, and thanks, guys. It's been really, really interesting listening to you and really, really glad that we're all agreeing, obviously, that you know Northern Ireland needs to get the finger out and start joining the global movement to where we need to be going. Um, and I do find the language you know, used. I mean, I understand the, the um, concerns within your industry, without a doubt, but you know, also find that the language that gets used very often about damaging the sector, wrecking the sector, wiping the sector out, really unhelpful if we're not coming up with plans um, and, and what to do, which is what this bill is trying to achieve. Um, and there was mention there of the GWP method being used, uh, and it is a very useful me- method uh, to measuring greenhouse gases. But let's be clear, it does not indicate that we should just leave animal numbers as they are and that methane emissions, methane emissions will sort themselves out. Um, and, and GWP does not suggest no agri emission reductions, uh, and we shouldn't be arguing for that. And I also want to note that... Um, of course, it's important to take in the different nature of the short and the long-term GHGs and the account. Um, but we also saw in evidence given to the Joint Directors Committee in the South, for example, that the scientists were unanimous that a split target approach like what's being used in New Zealand should not be used um, and is not an effective way to get the combination of action from all sectors. Um, so I want to pick up on maybe the implications and the mitigations of climate change um, that we've known for a very, very long time. During recent years, we also know that Northern Ireland has knowingly, during that period, increased agri-food production and livestock numbers. Um, And in fairness, the businesses that you guys are representing have seen huge economic benefits from that strategy. So can I ask you, what mitigations, what conversations, what actions have you been doing in tandem during these expansion years um, to to try and mitigate or make it sustainable for you in the future. Claire, could I could I could I just pick that up first of all? I think there's sure. a, a, a there's a misunderstanding here. Um, cattle numbers in Northern Ireland are broadly the same as they were in 1990. In fact, they're one percent lower. Sheep numbers are thirty percent lower. 
So we haven't had an expansion period in livestock numbers, and ruminant livestock numbers are the same. Other sectors have grown and grown significantly, um, but ours haven't. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, the second part of your question, I'll maybe, I'll maybe pass across to Dean or Sarah if they want to pick that up. Yeah, okay, I, I'm happy to go first. I think that the, I'd start this by saying, I'm not saying that efficiency can't be made. I'm not saying that there can't be significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. I think what I am saying is that you can achieve that without taking draconian action like culling the herd. Okay. And what gives me evidence to support those sort of statements are, you know, and I'm sure Sarah will come on to talk similar activity that's been happening in, in her organization. We've had two and have two long-standing demonstration farms, one in, in Ireland, one in the UK, that point to, you know, how how those efficiencies can be driven through all the things that we would have talked about previously, use of higher, higher performing genetics, um, high health status, different types of grasslands. Um, we've got a long-standing genetic, en genetic enhancement program um, where we're seeing those efficiencies and benefits of animals being able to be slaughtered at a younger age um, starting to come through. In Northern Ireland, we've got an integrated piece of activity with Dale Farm about connecting the dairy herd with the beef herd to drive efficiency. We're doing some uh, wild innovation things about wearable technology, converting methane uh, into uh, water vapor and so on and so forth. So I, I really don't want anybody here thinking that we're just sat doing nothing and, and think that there's nothing to be done because that's not the case. We recognize the significant, despite all the accounting that we've talked about, there is still significant efficiency benefits to be driven. But I think our point is you can do that without having to reduce numbers. And if you can drive that efficiency, you free up land that can be reappointed to other elements, um, rewilding, tree planting, whatever. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank and you. can I just echo, echo some of that, Claire? Because from, from our business point of view, we've I could almost say exactly the same as what Dean said. We we have a demonstration farm in in Ireland where we're we're looking at the suckler herd. We've got integrated bee systems looking um, at how we control those genetics as much as we can from literally the point of conception uh, right right through to, to consumption. So it's this is not a, a we're not starting from here. We've been doing this for a number of years and even working. At, um, with the likes of, of Tagus in the south and advisory agencies and different academic institutes, um, in Queens, for, for example, and CAFRI are, are leading various projects. It's all building up to making farmers more more efficient, hopefully more profitable at the same time, but also okay. contributing less um, okay. environmentally. I want to look at those economic models. Ask you, yeah. Chair, I know we're pushed for time, but I think this is really important. Uh, have you guys developed any economic models that would make farms here in Northern Ireland, rather than the industry, sustainable for the future? So we know that the, the global finance system is moving towards supporting and investing in net zero um, businesses. We know that Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, Sainsbury's, Walmart, all these big global companies are all setting net zero targets. So we know that our food is traded through big super market chains for example so if northern ireland is not meeting net zero if we're going to go for the ccc fair share model based on the uk 
being net zero, but Northern Ireland within that isn't. Um, do you feel that there is an well, two questions. Do you feel that that fair share model could disproportionately um, to support the intensive sector um, at the, the risk of the SME farmers? And have you done any economic modelling where we will be able to access FDI, for example, if we're not hitting net zero? And how would that impact cross-border trades, and particularly in things like the dairy sector and where the, the agri-food sector works cross-border? Um, I maybe pick up there's a lot in that. Um, I, I maybe pick up a couple of points. Maybe just pick out of it. One you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, somehow that, uh, you know, the 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 CCC ambition or the CCC target could somehow actually disadvantage smaller farmers, uh, you know, smaller family farmers, and lead to more intensification. Um, you know, or more intensive, you know, more, more, more meat coming from the intensive sector. I'd actually argue it's the reverse of that. I mean, um, if, if ruminant livestock, you know, it's ruminant livestock in the marginal lands are the first sectors that are going to be impacted by this. That's, 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 that's the immediate impact will be there because it's the, it's, it's those guys that are in the more, you know, marginally, it's marginally less profitable um, for, for, to producing beef on the you know on the hills, and those guys are the first to actually you know get out of this. But what are they going to do instead? And if there's a uh, and, and and you know is it going to they're going to build a poultry house or whatever? I mean that that's a question. I mean you know and is there is there potential if there's less beef been produced or if there's less red meat? Is that a, a, an advantage and a potential opportunity for the more intensive? sectors that uh, produce white meat that's like that's an important point to consider it's just what happens in terms of the sort of displacement of red meat and the displacement of, of kind of marginal land i suppose it's the the it's the cattle that are grazing in the side of the hill in the uh, west Tyrone or from or somewhere those are the ones that are first of all going to be impacted by this because they're the less profitable uh that's the less profitable end of the uh, end of the industry but i don't know if, if, if Sarah or dean want to pick up on the other parts of your question. Uh, can I just add one point of clarification, um, Claire? Because you, you, you talked about a lot of organisations and their commitments to net zero. Um, I wouldn't be familiar with all of them, uh, but certainly the ones that I would be familiar with in the, the grocery sector, their commitments relate to their own operations. So, so in jargon that would be scope one and scope two and and i'm not i'm not demeaning that that's that's still a substantial commitment um so then that they don't extend to being net zero for their entire supply chain because they inherently i i, I can't speak on their behalf but i'm assuming that they inherently understand the challenges associated with that when they're sourcing things um globally they have targets for their, their entire supply chain, but to be clear, they're not net zero. They're not uh, uh, net uh, net zero targets. And again, just to put in context, we've talked a lot, and understandably here, about why you know it's been a lot of livestock related. You know, because as as ABP as an organisation to it, sort of our own operations net zero, but that that'd only be like less than five percent of our total footprint. So, so just sort of important to understand, I guess, some of the small print associated with the headline claims. 
Okay, uh, folks, um, well, I need to really, really move because our next witnesses are waiting over half an hour there. Um, Harry, you're looking in there. Harry? Can you hear me, Chair? Yeah, go, Harry. Yep, good. Okay, thank you very much, Chair, first of all. And Colonel, um, Dean and Sarah, very interesting, sensible, realistic presentation there by yourselves. Thank you very much for it. Um, one big thing. You said if we went from 100% and uh, net zero to 82, like that's from 45 to 50, obviously the overall difference it would make would be 0.79. Is that right? Is that what you said? I think it was Colin Breen that said 0.73. Um, yeah. So that was the additional benefit uh, in terms of emissions. Okay. And the amount of agri-workers that that would displace or affect and the reduction in production would be colossal, wouldn't it, if that was the case, for that very, very minimal amount? That's right. Um, and as I said, we, 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 when, we have, when we have further information on the exact impact, um, because as I said, we've commissioned an impact assessment, Harry, but we haven't, yeah. we haven't, um, we haven't got it yet. No, that, that impact assessment would need to be seen for that small amount, and uh, very good, and I look forward to seeing it. Thank you very much. Um, thank you again, Chair. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Philip, do you want to make a proposal before we move on? Did you, Philip? Hmm. You lost Philip. Philip? No, Chair, I was just waiting to get myself off mute. I... I mean, just on the last point, I mean, the evidence today has been has been very interesting. I mean, uh, just in Harry's point about the uh, impact assessment, I mean, I suppose, as well as, as the points already raised, I mean, it, it would be important that any impact assessment uh, takes account of the impact of climate change on the industry with no mitigations. Uh, uh, I mean, I also understand that this conversation about this bill uh, is, you know, Creating the light of COP26, and you know, the, the, I, mean, I would imagine there'll certainly be much stricter uh, requirements in, in, on all nations uh, across the globe as a result of that, but just as a result of, of, of consumer demand. So, you know, obviously, also impact assessments need to take a, a, pack, uh, a factor in uh, consumer demand because I mean, I, I know uh, a few months ago the, the supermarket. Here on these islands, we're, we're we're taking a stand, particularly against Brazil in terms of some of the products. Uh, and I would imagine that you know places like here who maybe were ahead of the curve in terms of some of the the environmental uh, practices and, and, and climate change practices, you know, will be able to meet a growing consumer demand uh, as time goes on. But anyway, I just wanted to make that point. My key point, uh, Chair, was because the questions, my specific questions, have actually been asked by other members. Uh, but I, I would, just in light of the, the sub-subject of methane, because I mean, I was quite surprised at maybe some of the evidence we've heard in relation to methane, because uh, my understanding of it being is methane certainly needs to be tackled. Uh, no, it certainly doesn't last as long as carbon uh, in the atmosphere, but it is more more potent and you know when we're talking about global warming uh you know and the fact that we're almost at the 1.5 threshold you know reducing the temperature is key and and my understanding was that methane was was particularly potent in, in terms of global warming i mean i just a cursory glance uh, uh produced a un report saying very much that a, a month ago so i was going to suggest that maybe re 
is we, we, we actually detail areas to do specific research around the issue and impact of, of methane and also if there were any additional experts you know because I mean it is, it is important that we get the thing right and it's important that we are up to date with the science on, on methane so just from the committee's point of view in light of what we've heard today I think that would maybe be an important uh, work piece of work for us. Okay thank you Philip for that suggestion. Um, folks, we're going to have to rally on to the next, uh, we have the Dairy Council waiting here, um, but Connell, Sarah and Dean, we really appreciate you taking the time to meet us this morning, very, very comprehensive, a lot of uh, food for thought that you provided us with here, um, and I want to thank you very, very much for that, and we'll be in touch with you again, okay? Thank you, thank you. Right. Take care. Folks, um, we're going to move on here now to the next uh, section, it's the all 11 section from the Dairy Council. Um, Folks, we will try and keep it concise to keep within the uh, our time slot. And I want to thank um, I want to thank um, Mike, uh, Doctor Mike Johnson, uh, Chief Executive Dairy Council, for joining us here this morning. I want to thank you for your indulgence because I'm conscious that you should have been on earlier, but uh, the uh, the debate um, lasted longer than we expect uh, we expected. So, Mike, I'd like to ask you to to brief the committee, and then members will uh, will like to ask some questions after that. Okay, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, Chairman, uh, committee members. Um, thank you for the opportunity uh, to meet with you and provide our views on this private member's bill. The Dairy Council for Northern Ireland acts... Oh, sorry. Uh, I've been told that my microphone's too loud. Uh, well, okay. It's not too loud for me, but uh, I might be interfering somewhere else. <laughs> Um, Dairy Council for Northern Ireland acts on behalf of the dairy industry, promoting the natural goodness and quality of Northern Ireland milk and dairy products, representing the interests of the sector to government and others. And in taking uh, these roles, we represent uh, both dairy farmers and dairy processors. Dairy farms and dairy processing businesses are an important part of the Northern Ireland economy, sustaining the livelihoods of over 3,200 dairy farming families and over 2,200 uh, employees of dairy processors. Worth almost £1.5 billion annually, the dairy sector is an important pillar in rural communities, contributes significantly to the economy, and our products are in demand locally, nationally, internationally, with customers in over 80 countries. To put that into perspective, one in five of all farm employment is on dairy farms, and dairy products account for almost a third of farm output in Northern Ireland. And for every 100 litres of milk produced at UK level, almost 20 of these litres are produced in Northern Ireland. In other words, the dairy sector is one of the main pillars of the Northern Ireland agri-food sector. And we recognise with, that with this uh, comes responsibility to produce milk and dairy products in a sustainable way. Since 1990, the Northern Ireland dairy sector has reduced fuel and electricity emissions by around 70%, manure emissions by some 27%, and enteric fermentation emissions by 30%, with a 50% increase in milk production during the same period. So this shows that we take our environmental responsibility seriously uh, by investing to reduce our emissions per litre of milk by one third, while continuing to grow to the benefit of the Northern Ireland economy. 
So it's against this background that I would like to highlight a number of concerns that we have about this private member's bill as it's currently drafted. At the outset, let me make it clear that we agree that climate change is one of the most important issues of our age and something that we need to get right if we're to achieve the sustainable future that we all want and deserve. As a sector, we're fully supportive of the ambition for the UK to achieve net carbon emissions, net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and for the need to ensure Northern Ireland makes its allocated contribution to this overall target. In contrast, however, this bill is asking industry and society in general to embark on a journey to a destination of 2045 without being told why 2045 is the desired destination, nor how we'll get there. Such is the nature of a private member's bill that there's no onus on its proposers to provide either an economic impact assessment or a rural needs assessment meaning that neither society nor industry has any indication of the consequences of the journey that they're being asked to undertake. So let me pose you a question. Would you and your colleagues in the Northern Ireland Assembly entertain a private member's bill for something as important as, for example, major changes to the health service or education? I, I don't think you would. Yet this is the parliamentary tool that is being used for something as important as climate change. Our issue is not with the need for a climate change bill for Northern Ireland, but rather that as a parliamentary tool, a private member's bill is not fit for this purpose. A bill, a bill dealing with something as important as climate change should be based on robust scientific evidence and have been subjected to proper process of consultation, impact assessment and analysis and this is not the case with this bill. The achievement of targets that a climate change bill will set will be achievable only with the cooperation of industry. The Northern Ireland Assembly needs to be aware that by embarking on such a journey based on this private member's bill as it's currently drafted, in sporting to parlance risks losing the changing room and pre precipitating a loss of industry's confidence in the Assembly's leadership on this matter. Without doubt, this bill would have a very significant impact on the Northern Ireland dairy sector. The development and implementation of policies to deliver net zero by 2045 would mean that the sector's trajectory towards this goal would not be linear. Significant reductions in cow numbers with consequential reduction in milk production would mean a series of tipping points would be reached within dairy processing plants where falling throughput would render plants inefficient and unprofitable. Inevitably, unprofitable, unprofitable plants would have to close, triggering rationalization and job losses. And as milk production continued to fall, so the cycle of plant closures, job losses and rationalization would be ongoing, eventually transforming what is currently a thriving Northern Ireland dairy sector into little more than a cottage industry. In addition, this would have significant consequences for the many ancillary and service businesses that engage with the dairy supply chain, as well as negatively impacting the Northern Ireland economy and rural communities. 
Reducing our dairy sector to that of a dairy a, a cottage industry would have a further very important consequence. Without a corresponding reduction in consumption, dairy products would have to be imported from other countries, many of which are less efficient and of higher emissions compared to the Northern Ireland dairy sector. In other words, we would create carbon leakage without any benefits. And like many aspects of climate change and sustainability, decisions in one area can have unintended consequences in another. Nowhere is this more obvious than in relation to diet. In 2010, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization recognized that a sustainable diet is multifaceted. It should be protective and respectful of biodiversity and ecosystems, culturally acceptable, economically fair and affordable, um, while being nutritionally adequate, safe and healthy. In other words, we should not focus on environmental impact and isolation, but we must also consider aspects such as health and nutritional value, the economic impact and cultural aspect of our diet. In Northern Ireland, milk and dairy foods make an important contribution to the nutritional quality of the diet. The dairy food group is the largest contributor to the intake of calcium, iodine, vitamins B2 and B12, supplying around a third for adults and even more for children and teenagers. These nutrients are not readily replaced by other food groups, and there is evidence that delivering the same nutritional balance without dairy increases the cost of the diet. The outworking of this bill, which will move Northern Ireland from being self-sufficient in dairy products to being a significant importer, is that the cost of dairy products in Northern Ireland will increase, forcing lower-income families in particular to either change their diets and consume less dairy products or pay higher prices for imported dairy products. In either case, levels of food poverty will increase without any environmental uh, benefit. So it's difficult to see how this bill, which will downgrade the Northern Ireland dairy sector from being a, a vibrant sector in the Northern Ireland economy to a cottage industry with dairy products having to be imported, is in line with the UN's position on sustainability. That being the case, and in terms of the international reputation of Northern Ireland, the enactment of a bill that is not in harmony with the UN's sustainable development goals would not be helpful. In conclusion, Chairman, it's our view that rather than being reduced to a cottage industry, the Northern Ireland dairy sector has the ability, the track record and the willingness to join with you in the journey to UK net zero by 2050. Delivering the changes that dealing with climate change requires will need the involvement of farmers because change cannot be delivered without the knowledge and expertise that has been imbued in each farmer over generations. Dairy farmers and their families have enormous pride in their land. They're taught from a young age to respect the land, their animals and the natural environment so that their heritage can continue to be passed to future generations. It's part of their DNA. With this generational passing of the baton comes knowledge of how to ma manage their land and work with nature and its seasonal variations to produce high quality dairy products. 
at any point in time, this generational model usually represents an excess of 100 years of accumulated knowledge and experience per dairy farmer. The challenge for a, a Northern Ireland climate change bill is to engage and harness this wealth of knowledge and experience to del help deliver the results that we need. Chairman, a bill of this nature is not fit for purpose of addressing an issue as important as climate change and does not provide an appropriate process for engaging and working with the agri-food sector and farmers in particular without whom targets will not be achievable. The Northern Ireland dairy sector has the experience and track record of delivering changes that will be necessary as part of the UK's journey to net zero. Our ask is for a bill that provides a framework that is evidence-based and which provides targets we can support in the knowledge that they are achievable without transforming our sector into a cottage industry. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that um, uh, address, Mike. Um, I'm going to actually, I'm going to move around the room before I come back in myself. Uh, the first person who's indicated they want to ask a question is is John Blair. John, can you come in there? Yeah, sure, and thank you. Can I thank Mike as well for his uh, presentation? It's good to see him as, as ever. Um, Mike, if you don't, don't mind me drawing on, on a couple of things you mentioned there uh, and trying to, to build a comparison, um, I'd be grateful as well if we could reference in any replies, the um, all-island situation here, the fact that there is a neighbouring jurisdiction with a target of its own already, and we will have to interface and interact with that going forward. But more specifically, uh, can you shed some light on what, what might appear as a lack of clarification around where 82% in relation to uh, UK Climate Change Committee uh, target might be achievable, but 100 wouldn't be? and also where 2045 might not be achievable, but 2050 would be. I'm always keen to get more clarification on the rationale between saying one is okay or might be achievable and the other one isn't. Yeah, I, I think I think it's... I would, I, I would tend to look at it not so much in terms of achievable as what's the impact, um, because um, we don't... Uh, the, the 2045 net zero, we don't know what the impact will be. Uh, now, I think in the, in the previous session, uh, Colin mentioned that there's uh, an impact assessment that, that's being carried out. That's being carried out on behalf of the wider sector, uh, agri-food sector. Um, and it's being done because it's, there's no re requirement under the, this bill. So it's looking at what the impact, the initial assessment that we have had uh, from that work for the, the Northern Ireland dairy sector is that the, the impact would mean that the, the scale of the Northern Ireland dairy sector would have to reduce to a level, the production, the milk production output of which would we last saw in 1946. Let, let, let that sink in. The evidence that we're getting is that the reduction, the scale of reduction that we would have to have in the Northern Ireland dairy sector would result in levels of milk production that we last saw in 1946. That's why I say cottage industry. Uh, so this bill would be taking us back to the future. 
In terms of uh, the uh, the 2015, uh, based on the climate, uh, the, the the committee on climate change recommendations, that still poses big, big challenges for us, uh, because at the minute they're suggesting I think something of the order of a 20% reduction in the level of of, uh, of livestock. Um, so there's still big challenges that would be uh, have to be addressed in that, and we shouldn't underestimate those. Uh, so it's it's the relativity of the impact. Uh, John, that would be concerning us. Okay, I appreciate that. But to, to draw it a bit further, if you don't, if you don't mind, on the um, comparison between the north and the south on this island, and also Northern Ireland's position in relation to other jurisdictions within the UK, be that England, Scotland, or, or Wales, what what are your thoughts about comparison there on, on what they have um, already committed to achieve, and what we are either trying to achieve or in some cases, resisting achieving. Yeah, and I think I think we need to bear in mind that in terms of drivers of change in this area of of environment and sustainability, there's probably three main drivers here. One is legislation. The second is what customers are asking for, and the third is what competitors are doing. So legislation is but one. Uh, is, is but one of the, the, the drivers here. So our industry, whether it's north or south, east or west, is going to have to be cognizant, yes, of the, of the legislation within its, uh, uh, its, its state, but it will also have to be cognizant of what cu- uh, customers are asking for. And that could be cu- not just customers here uh, in, in the United Kingdom or in Europe, but it's customers overseas as well. Um, and we obviously have to be cognizant of what our, our competitors are doing and achieving and what they're trying to do to get a competitive advantage. Um, because you know, we go, we go into uh, third country markets, China, Taiwan, etc. We're competing with the United States, we're competing with New Zealand, we're competing with Australia. So we need to be cognizant of, of these competitive elements as well. So these are all coming together to, uh, to mean that they, uh, it's more than just legislation. But if, if you even looked at the, uh, the, 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 the drivers of the trade element, uh, and uh, Declan has, uh, has, has raised on a number of occasions uh, the, the, the island of Ireland issue, and it's a valid point that he makes. But that island of Ireland trade in dairy products, it's not just the product going from Northern Ireland down, down, down south for, for manufacture. But there's also product that's coming, that's uh, mixed origin, that's coming from the south of Ireland through Northern Ireland and into Great Britain. So it, it's, a, it's a very complex issue once you start to say, well, there's, there's, there's more than one jurisdiction involved here and there's more than one legislation uh, that, that's involved. And it is complicated. And it, it begs the question, can you look simply then at one aspect of trade, which will be whatever the environmental or the sustainability criteria are? Can you look at that in isolation? Or do you need to take into consideration then other things as we do, uh, animal health and welfare, through Ireland being a single epidemiological unit? Fine. But what about the marketing? We don't have joined up on, on marketing. We don't have joined up uh, on, on some other aspects of, uh, of, of, 
above standards. So there's, it's a very, very complex issue, which is important and it does need to be addressed. But I think it needs to be addressed within those three pillars, legislation, customers, and competition. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, just before I move around, just, just that you, now you, you raised that, Mike, um, in, in terms of the three drivers and the island-wide approach, I suppose um, maybe want to just mention to you, you know, a couple of weeks ago yourself and your counterpart in the south were in, down in the, um, the, the, as part of an Irish government inquiry, where you were making the case that the, the milk on the island of Ireland should be deemed not as mixed origin because that was undermining our ability to access third country markets through the as a result of EU deals. And you also highlighted how other competitors were undermining our milk here because it was deemed mixed origin. So how then do you think it's is that not then a contradiction that you're sort of advocating now that there should be different sort of um, uh, emission levels as part of climate change in both parts of the island? If on one hand you're arguing that we should have a single pool of milk and uh, for the island of Ireland, not deemed as mixed origin, yet we're asking for legislative differences on the island. Uh, were that, were those two not contradictions? No. I don't think so, Declan, uh, because it, it uh, what I'm saying is we need to recognise that there's there's three drivers here. Um, and that the, the requirements of customers, the need for uh, competitive advantage or making sure that we're not competitively disadvantaged will also be drivers. That will mean that, you know, that milk that, for example, is going uh, from north to south will have to meet whatever requirements the end cons uh, customer is looking for, whether there's a legislative coherence or not. So there's, there's other things that will come into play here rather than just legislation. But, you know, you can't just look at the island of Ireland in terms of what's moving north to south. There's product that moves from south to, 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 to uh, into Northern Ireland for further processing and then on, into Great Britain. So that product then has to be relating to whatever the legislation legislative requirements. So if you're going to go down that island of Ireland, you really do need to be talking about harmonising Ideally, then, do you not what the uh, what what legislation is in place in Ireland and the United Kingdom? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear I hear what you're saying, and I suppose that that, that is the case. The, the Britain is looking, at, I suppose, at 2050, and the South of Ireland is looking towards 2050. Yet, um, us here on the same island is looking for a, a differential sort of a target if, if we adopted the, the route with the UKCCC suggests. Are, are we not a little bit um, preemptive in that, um, in the sense that we don't yet know what the sectoral targets will be in, uh, in Ireland? Um, so uh, I think it'll be interesting to see once those sectoral targets are taken, will we see, um, you know, a differential approach uh, based on uh, for, for farms in Connaught as opposed to Munster, mm -hmm. uh, based on the size and the location and the, the nature of the landscape of, of the farms in Connaught as opposed to Munster. You know, so there, I think we're, we're maybe jumping the gun a little bit there. We'll have to wait and see, I think, as to what the um, sectoral approaches will be uh, in Ireland and how that's going to be applied across the country. Thank you. Um, th thanks, Mike. Um, William? Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, William, we got you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike, for your presentation. 
Uh, we, I, for some time, a uh, farmer all my life, so I'm also of a dairy farm at home, so fully understand the situation. Uh, the Climate Change Committee has made clear recommendations for the UK for the four regions. Um, Northern Ireland made recommendations that we should set a target of 82% by 2050. In doing that, uh, the UK as a whole reaches net zero. What is your, is it your belief that that is doable, uh, Mike? Well, as, as I said to John, um, it's, I, I tend to, I think we, you need to focus on what the impact is. Um, and obviously the impact in going for the UK target uh, is less severe on, on our sector than going for what is being proposed in this climate change bill. Um, so the, the, the assessment of the uh, Committee on Climate Change is that it would, the, the, the uh, achievement of the, the target for the UK would require about a 20% reduction uh, in the, uh, the level of livestock uh, in Northern Ireland. That's, 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 let's not underestimate that and the impact that that would have. Now, I lay alongside that uh, the evidence that Professor uh, Jerry Boyle gave recently uh, to the uh, Arachtis, uh where he was saying that, look, um, you know, yes, that, that is a worst case scenario, but, you know, there's things that with 30 odd years, 35 years before we get to that stage, science will emerge, ways of measuring uh, emissions will emerge and evolve. And 20%, we might have to look at that, but we might be able to reduce that. Um, and as well, we, we might be able, we should be able to continue on the journey that we're already on of improving productivity and improving the efficiency of production. So at the end of the day, uh, from a dairy industry point of view, uh, it's about the impact but it's about the. It's also about being able to continue to uh, produce the the levels of milk that we have been doing, so that we can keep our processing factories efficient, efficient, and we can continue to make the contribution that we are making to feeding the rest of the population in the United Kingdom, uh, meeting the demand from customers in Europe and indeed uh, in in countries throughout the world. Um, so we need to make sure that we can find ways of continuing to maintain our milk production with less, less, less animals, but that we can meet the demands for, from our customers for the future. Uh, under the private members bill, as you've said, the outworking of that could mean a vast reduction in milk production in Northern Ireland. That being said, it also then, in, in consequence of that, would mean a, a large number of redundancies or job losses in Northern Ireland too, would be clearly the outworking of that, would it not be? Oh yeah, without doubt. Um, I mean, uh, I, I wasn't trying to be um, over dramatic in using the phrase cottage industry, but you can understand if we're going back to levels of milk production, that we last saw in 1946. You can you can start and join the dot William for the 
impact that that would have on processing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. Claire. Thanks, checking. Can you okay there? You okay, Claire? <clears throat> Sorry. Thanks, Mike. Um, and great to hear you today as well. Um, and you just started there. You were um saying that you didn't know why twenty forty five had been picked as a as a target year. Um. In the bill, so I just want to maybe make it clear for you that the target of 2045 reflects a general legislative trend really towards stronger climate legislation, and that's within the proven context that we're living in an interconnected um, climate and ecological emergency. But even at a UK and international level, too, we do need the strong net zero targets to allow us to keep pace with these constantly. <laughs> And we've seen recently even Boris Johnson has increased the UK's emission reduction target from 68% by 2030 to 78% by 2035. And again, no plan on how Northern Ireland achieves that even within its fair share modelling. So I think that we need to be very, very cognizant that if we don't keep pace in Northern Ireland, it puts us at significant risk if the UK decides to be more ambitious, which we see it's doing. And that's been picked up also with the CCC in their letter to Minister Poots on the setting of a net zero target, because they say very clearly that as new evidence on climate science, behaviours or low carbon technologies, particularly in farming emerges, then you know the UK's international climate commitments change. It may be prudent to tighten a 2050 target in Northern Ireland. So just within that type of scenario, um, and given that this bill has no sectoral targets, um, it does not address the, or specify the agri-food sector, certainly not the dairy sector, and that we know that there are other sectors who can move far and fast. Um, we know that then measuring and reporting is going to be absolutely key. My question, or what I would like to, to know from you, do you feel that the dairy sector... Is resourced enough to begin to measure and report their development? Yeah, um, well, th thanks for that, uh, Claire. And um, just just on the, the you know, the, the UK ambition and, uh, you know, I, I think we, we have no problem uh, with the, the UK's ambition being tightened uh, as evidence evolves. Absolutely no problem with that. Um, and I think from a not just from a dairy industry point of view, but from an agri-food sector point of view, uh, the key, the key for there's there's a couple of elements here. We we need to we need to have a, a really really good research program here, because if we can have uh, the, the 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 right research programs properly financed, there's a a really good chance that they're going to be able to deliver the mitigation measures that we'll need 20 years from now to be able to continue to meet our commitment to meeting the targets. So that research is extremely important. We need to, as you say, we need to be able to better measure. Uh, now, we're, uh, the, the like CAFRI, for example, at the minute, are putting in place a pilot program that will be looking at um, carbon audits on farms right across the piece using um, looking at different carbon calculators because there's a range of cal carbon calculators that are available at the minute to look and see which one's maybe the best for Northern Ireland. 
So taking that sort of evidence that we can then start to apply that at individual farm level to measure the emissions, set targets at, at, at individual farm level. That's the sort of direction of travel that we need to be going in. But we also then need to be making sure that we can maximize the adoption of this new knowledge, current knowledge at farm levels. A lot of our dairy farmers we know are already doing the sorts of things that are delivering the levels of reductions that I've, I've, I've indicated. But th there's room for improvement. There's more that we can and should be doing, and we need a plan for that. But I think the key thing is that when you look at the journey that we have come on as a dairy sector from 1990 and the level of reductions that we have achieved, we can do more. That's the starting point. We can do much more to continue to deliver the sorts of targets that we're going to need, whether it's 2045 or 2050. But it's those sorts of that direction of travel that we need, and we need the research to be able to help us to do that. Yeah. And where are we with that research, Mike? Well, I think that there are really good research projects, for example, in AFPE, uh, where they're looking at the minute at um, what can be done to uh, mitigate the biogenic methane emissions from cattle. Uh, we, uh, we've got had a number of dairy farmers that have been involved with AFPE in projects looking at soil nutrient management to minimize the, uh, the leakage of nutrients into the upper band catchment area, looking at what we can do to uh, reduce the amount of protein in the dairy cow feed, looking at what we can do to reduce the uh, age of first calving and therefore reduce the number of herd replacements that we'll need. So there's quite a number of these research streams that are ongoing at the minute with the engagement of dairy farmers. And once we get the, 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 the output of that re those pieces of research, then we need to make sure that we're getting, really maximizing the adoption of that knowledge at all farms. Uh, but we need to then be looking 10, 12, 15, 20 years down the line to say, what else are we going to need? Where are the issues going to be where we will need the research knowledge to be able to put in place the mitigation uh, measures. Yeah, and then so you you still feel then that as we begin to develop, as behaviours change, as technology changes, as science changes, as targets change, as the rest of the world moves forward, um, and that this bill doesn't have sectoral targets, and that we know others can pick up the, the heavy lifting at the start while we develop this reporting, as we begin to do that monitoring, that you still have. Um, real concerns that this bill is going to, you know, rather than making the industry sustainable um, for 2045 and beyond, that it's going to bring us back to 1945 and cottage industry style? If, unless there's significant change, Claire, um, I, I would be concerned that that would be the case. But if we can get the changes, uh, not only will um, it, it mean that the impact is less severe, but I think that a willingness to change would also send a very important and clear message to the industry as a whole, that you want to engage the industry, that you want to work with us. Because if you can send that clear message, I think that you'll get a very positive response. Because we want, we want to get this right. It's in everybody's interest to get this right. 
Um, and so we, we want to be involved, but give us a chance. Great. Thank you. Okay, okay folks, we're going to have to keep moving swiftly here because our next uh, witness are up soon. Patsy? Patsy? Yeah, I'm now. Uh, yes, Mike, thanks very much indeed for your extensive evidence there. Um, one bit, the only bit that, that I want is a wee bit, uh, you referred to evidence about reverting back to production levels of 1946. Is that written evidence that can be shared with us at all, please? That It's still a work in progress, Patsy. Um, it's the same piece of work that Connell had referred to. Uh, this is an impact assessment that's been carried out across sectors. Um, we're hoping that that will be available within the next number of weeks, and certainly at that stage it will be shared with this committee. Okay, that's that's grand. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. That's it. Rosemary? Rosemary? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to ask uh, about the genetics in relation to uh, your animal livestock, in, in relation to the the, the animals. Are, are, is there any breed of cow, you know, your Frasian, in comparison to your Jersey cow? What is there a difference there in relation to the methane production, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Uh, that's beyond me, Rosemary. I, I haven't a clue. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have that level of detail. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know you thought you said you talked about different. Um, different investigations that were going on. I just wondered if if the type of animal was being investigated in relation to the breeding, etc. Because I know you spoke about the different foods and how that affects the affects the production of methane. I, I would be surprised if somewhere in the world that piece of work is not being done. Um, I, I'm just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Oh, right. That's okay. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, okay, members, let me just see here. I'm just, just checking my, my list here. Okay. Okay, well, um, Mike, I want to just thank you for coming here this morning. And you know, part of this uh, call for evidence that we're doing is to listen to directly to stakeholders and people like yourselves who um, have a, a huge insight into the potential impact on of this PMB on your on the industry. And indeed, listening from you too as to maybe find out ways that it could framework build ways that could be amended or, or whatever to uh, with you, some of the things that you would, would like to see uh, changes made up. And that's, that's important. And, and I hope that you'll feed that into us uh, in the time ahead. And indeed, you, know, you will be aware that based on the framework of the bill as well, the, the climate action plans will be subject to public consultation uh, as well, every the five yearly uh, climate action plans. As well. So we're really great to hear from you this morning and would like to hear from you as as the the this scrutiny process continues, Mike. So thanks very much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care, Mike. Bye now. Bye bye. Okay, members. Um, we're uh, can I get agreement to publish the briefing from the Dairy Council on our committee's webpage? Yeah. Okay. Okay, members. We're going to move now then to the item seven. Is oral evidence session. Uh, from the UK Carbon Chapter and Storage Research Centre, UKCCSRC, is written briefing which has been tabled, and I want to welcome Vice Starleaf, um, 
John Gibbons, uh, Director of the UKCCSRC. Uh, John, you're very welcome this afternoon. Uh, uh, I'm sorry you had a, we're on a wee bit over schedule, but uh, thanks very much for your indulgence. And I'll ask members now to, um, I'll ask John to give your briefing and members will then ask some questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Chair. Um, yes, I'm Director of the UK Carbon Capture and Storage Research Centre. I've been working on carbon capture and storage for approximately 20 years, looking at it. And I think what I would say at the moment is that we have a situation where climate change objectives have changed quite radically from previous situations. Um, we started out when I, when I first started on carbon capture and storage in uh, the early 2000s with the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, as it was then, saying that what was required for the UK, uh, UK share of avoiding dangerous climate change was a 60% reduction in emissions, 60%. This then went forward for a while. Um, there was a fair bit of debate about it. We had the Glen Eagles Conference where the UK led the world on climate change in 2005. And then we eventually got to the Climate Change Bill which increased the target to 80% reduction and also set up the independent body, the Committee of Climate Change. And it made, made that 80% a legally binding target, not just a recommendation. Since then, time's gone on and climate science has progressed. And the IPCC, in its most recent deliberations, came to the conclusion that the ultimate effect of climate that we would see is proportional to the cumulative emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. So it's, it's, it's simply a matter of how much CO2 has been emitted over time uh, from anthropogenic sources. And if you follow that science, then the only way to avoid dangerous climate change is to limit the cumulative amount over time to a value which won't cause unwarranted warming. And that, that has the immediate consequence that you clearly have to get to net zero. It's also got the consequence that if you've emitted too much CO2 before you get to net zero, then you will have to go negative. And this is a very, very different situation. So we've been used to a long time for the idea of being thrifty and frugal and cutting down first of all to 60% and then to 80%. And that was more or less a reasonable strategy. It, it would work. You might want to use carbon capture and storage uh, to help keep certain activities going. So for example, coal consumption, but it wasn't absolutely necessary. As soon as you go to net zero or particularly to net negative, you have to have some form of carbon capture and storage. And indeed, you not only have to do what I call traditional CCS, where you capture from point sources, you also have to be able to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And you need to be able to do that using technologies which are not limited by natural resources. So you can't just rely on take up by land, particularly since take up by land is going to be adversely affected by the warming that we're inevitably going to see now. You can't rely on CO2 getting picked up from 
biomass, which you then burn and capture the CO2, uh, you have to rely on technical means to take CO2 from the air. And that's, that's, a, that's the way it is. Now, that technology is available. We don't know how much it will eventually cost because it's being developed, um, but it will be available. And effectively, what I'm suggesting is that the whole dialogue that you know, you've got to cut emissions from particular industries, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, implies an infinite price on emitting CO2 to the atmosphere. That provides an imperative. It's infinite. We've got to do it. There's no alternative, but there is an alternative. The alternative is to pay to remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. And that includes removing CO2 from the atmosphere to compensate for the emission of other greenhouse gases. The UK has a target of net greenhouse gas emissions, uh, taking all, all greenhouse or significant greenhouse gases into account. So, so that's the context. It, it really is because we've changed to net zero and because in fact, we're seeing a, a possibility of net negative the dialogue has changed. There's no, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, cutting emissions and that will be all right. You've got to actually face up to the fact you have to get net zero and net zero overall. Now, in the context of the bill we've been seeing, um, there doesn't appear much recognition of how, in reality, the world will have to achieve a balance. Uh, it doesn't recognize the fact that you can indeed we'll have to do that in different places you can't you can't do um, co2 removal just anywhere and, it, and it, it misses that out so clearly you have to look at local circumstances you have to average over the world as a whole and indeed you can average over the world as a whole the climate's well mixed um, just as an aside I, I noted that there appeared to be a nitrogen budget incorporated as well Apart from N2O, particularly potent greenhouse gas, I don't think nitrogen has much bearing on the matter here directly. And I think the difficulty of achieving net zero requires that you focus. And we really do need to focus on that and focus on objectives. And it's fair enough people haven't got to grips with what climate really requires anymore because it just goes against previous trends. You know, we, we, we started out worrying about, is there enough fossil fuel? We had the oil crisis. We, we tried to reduce energy consumption. Um, and then, as I say, we were told, oh, you just, just reduce CO2 emissions by 60% will be okay. Just reduce them by 80% will be okay. Now it's a much, much harder and, and uh, non-traditional sort of objective. It's no longer conserve, cut. It's just get to net zero. And then, as I say, for that, we'll have new tools. Now, it may seem that this is a pretty radical way of doing it, but um, I think the US sets quite a good example on this. Uh, had John Kerry saying that 50% of the technologies that we will need haven't been developed yet. And also in the most recent climate bill proposals in, in the US, they're proposing uh, four uh, direct air capture centers and, and a lot of other things, but, but particularly to get to net zero, four direct air capture centers each capturing a million tons a year of CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it permanently. So we can see that, that actually people are grappling with the new realities and facing up to the fact that we will have to do things which would not make any sense at all in, in the view of, of conservation, energy conservation. Um, they're purely being done for climate and to get to net zero. Now, in that context, as I say, Northern Ireland doesn't have access to secure geological storage. 
uh, as readily as other parts of the United Kingdom. And it is only reasonable that, that that takes place in areas where it can take place at lower cost. As I say, the carbon dioxide doesn't need to be the same carbon dioxide that you emitted. It's perfectly reasonable to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, anywhere in the world, indeed, and also to take carbon dioxide out to offset other warming effects. So that's, I think, that the 82% target set by the Committee on Climate Change, which has oversight of all of the UK's emissions, uh, should be taken extremely seriously. As I say, it's perfectly reasonable that Northern Ireland uh, it doesn't have the tools to do the job. It really doesn't. It, 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 it's, it's, not, it's just a factor of geography and geology. Having said all that, I think Again, looking at integration with the UK, the rest of the UK, there's, there's two possibilities, at least, um, to cope or to, to participate in, in the economy which will deliver net zero. Um, one of them is the use of decarbonized energy vectors from the rest of the economy, some of which will be produced with the help of uh, CCS. So it's important to think in your legislation to what extent you will have decarbonized electricity imports and possibly decarbonized hydrogen or even ammonia imports. And those those shouldn't be ruled out because they could be a valuable way of achieving this, this challenging target. Uh, I also mentioned the use of biomass to achieve negative emissions. You can't, shouldn't uh, force the use of biomass beyond sort of uh, reasonable availability. But at the moment, the UK is importing biomass from the United States to use in uh, power plants as pellets. And I see no reason why properly resourced biomass from Northern Ireland shouldn't be used in the same way. Now, I know that you can use biomass locally to generate energy, but the best use of it for climate is to take it to a point where it can be used with carbon capture and storage and re thereby remove CO2 from the atmosphere, even allowing for any losses in transport you'll get much better climate benefits from doing that. So I think that, again, ought to be something that's considered uh, and put into the balance. But what I will say overall in this is when you're looking at net zero, think about it as a matter of economics, not a matter of infinite carbon price that drives any particular activity. You can think what to do. It may well pay very significantly to reduce emissions, but sometimes you just, when you're pushing it really hard, don't try and reduce the emissions directly there, but do a removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere elsewhere in the world. The climate will not know the difference. Thank you. I can't hear you, uh, Declan. Sorry, John. Uh, thank you for that very informative and detailed presentation. I'm going to move around the room here now. The first person who wants to ask a question is Philip McGuigan. Philip? Thank, thank you, Chair. And uh, my apologies, John, because it was either your internet or my internet, but uh, I, there was bits and pieces of your evidence that, that I was missing more than likely my internet. But in terms of the technology, I mean, you, you referenced the CCC's report, uh, and you know, and they're, they're saying that a net zero target isn't achievable for the North without. Uh, a disproportionate amount of carbon capture uh, and storage technology being placed here. Now, I mean, obviously, 
surely it makes sense or it makes sense to me that you, you would place that technology where it's most needed uh, according to the, the CCC reports is the north but regardless of that uh, I mean given the developments of uh, projections and uh, that you, you've outlined in terms of future CC technology and you reference uh, John Kerry in the US and, and probably likelihood of, of millions of pounds being invested in this technology. You know, is it possible that you know, all of this can contribute to net zero here? And I mean, I, I'm predicating all that by the fact, and, and I think you referenced it in your thing, that, I mean, obviously the most important factor in all of this is reducing uh, carbon emissions. I mean, I, mean, I was reading a report there at the weekend about, you know, sometimes companies in particular, but maybe particular governments, will use technology as an excuse not to reduce carbon. And, and that can't be the case that we must reduce carbon first and foremost and use technology only in instances where that's not possible. Look, getting to net zero is going to be very expensive. Okay. It, it's a challenge. We've got a limited time to do it. Um, I really hope we cut emissions as fast as we can and don't put the burden on, on future generations to pull it back out the atmosphere. But it is just a matter of net emissions. The climate really cannot tell if you've put CO2 into the atmosphere in one part of the atmosphere and taken it out somewhere else. It just cannot tell the difference. It's exactly the same. So it's a matter of economics. And I, and I wouldn't you know, I really can't suggest too strongly that you look at it objectively. So the priority is avoiding dangerous climate change. It's not particularly cutting emissions from one source in one part of the world. It's getting an overall result. So it becomes a matter of economics. And it's very important to develop the technologies to remove CO2 from the air at the moment. People are looking at it not for not for serious removal because there are cheaper ways to cut CO2 emissions in the short term, but given that it's going to be needed, it's very important to get on with it and get the cost down. So that's what I'm saying. When the climate genuinely cannot tell the difference between whether you remove it at source or remove it elsewhere. Okay. And just kind of maybe specifically in relation to here, no, I mean, if you could maybe describe the limitations that you see facing uh, you know, the advancement of this technology or its capabilities over a five to ten year period? Well, so, so what we expect to see over a five year period um, are the first plants going. At the moment, again, in the United States, uh, Oxygen Petroleum and Carbon Engineering are working on a plant, again, at the million tonne scale, which may be one of the four million tonne scale. So I expect to see some technologies developing. And then I think fairly rapidly, and you, you do have quite a lot of interest from companies like Microsoft, actually, because Microsoft is looking at not only, in fact, reducing its own emissions, but or current emissions, but reducing historic emissions. Um, Bill Gates uh, is supporting the carbon engineering project. I think we'll look at seeing the technology rolled out quite a lot. And you may find things like people being offered the scope to just capture their annual emissions. Um, now, if you're thinking about it, if you're talking about emission costs of some hundreds of pounds a ton, probably, um, whatever it is, five or ten tons a year, actually, for some people, you know, that would be a reasonable uh, luxury expenditure. 
And I think we'll see that developing. And then in the longer term, we're not looking to get to net zero until 2050. In the longer term, we'll see a rollout of this essentially as a national activity um, to underpin nation's commitment to net zero. So I'm not, I'm not saying that this will, you know, get you to net zero in five or 10 years, but we're not going to get to net zero in five or 10 years, whatever we do. What I'm saying is that when we're looking at, at longer term trends over several decades, in the three decades we need to get to, zero, get to net zero, we're looking, if you want to get to net zero by cutting every possible source of, of CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions, first of all, you'll fail because I think you'll find it just impossible. But secondly, it'll cost huge amounts of money. And in fact, you'll alienate a number of people in trying to get there. If you just say, look, you've got to get to net zero, that's not negotiable. But there are ways of doing it that involve spending money. They involve spending money for no benefit other than the climate. Uh, then you know, we've got a way ahead and it will deliver. And in fact, it will deliver the unfortunate likelihood that we've got to get net emission, uh, net negative emissions as well. Okay. 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 Uh, Patsy. Thanks very much indeed, John. I found that very illuminating. Um, and uh, but can you maybe just there was a couple of things that you mentioned there, and um, you're clearly an expert in your field. There, uh, I've read your CV. Uh, if I could just the two elements that you were referring to was the use of decarbonized energy. Uh, if you could just talk me through what that is. And the second thing is then uh, the use of biomass in carbon capturing. If you could just talk me through what you mean by that as well, please. Yeah, so sure. So, I mean, obviously you can't capture CO2 um, from people's houses, for example, or from, from small factories. Uh, and you can't capture and store CO2 directly if you don't have access to a pipeline system to take it to geological storage. And I should say geological storage is porous rock layers a kilometre down um, offshore in the UK, the sort of places that have held oil and gas for many, many millions of years. So if you don't have that, then you need to use a fuel or an energy source which doesn't emit CO2. And that's basically electricity or hydrogen. Uh, those are the only two options. And as you probably know, in the UK, we're looking at using greater electrification in a lot of industries. We're looking at using heat pumps in houses instead of uh, central heating. And we're also looking for some industrial applications that need high temperature heat using hydrogen uh, and also considering that for use in, in houses. And I think the, the jury is still out over over whether electrification in, or hydrogen is, is preferable in some areas. So a a lot of these, uh, a lot of the low carbon electricity or hydrogen in particular will be coming from clusters with CCS and it will be distributed throughout the country. And my advice was, again, I guess sort of tying in with the general tenor of the, the current proposals, is that you should make it perfectly reasonable to import carbon free energy vectors from elsewhere in the UK or, or even indeed from uh, from cross-border. I mean, uh, there may well be feasible carbon capture and storage clusters in the south of Ireland using storage there. So you just, just be aware that you need to bring in things from outside. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So don't, don't rule that out. Um, the point about biomass was that 
when you look at the climate benefit, there's an overwhelming advantage in using biomass with carbon capture and storage, where the carbon dioxide, instead of being emitted to the atmosphere, is put away permanently. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, it doesn't matter where the carbon dioxide came from. If a molecule of carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere that could have otherwise not gone into the atmosphere, there's one, one molecule less. And as far as warming is concerned, that's it. You know, the fact that it came from biomass and didn't go into the atmosphere, it came from fossil fuel, didn't go into the atmosphere. It's all the same. So what you find is that if you do the climate accounting, then even though you will have some other emissions in the whole life cycle in transporting biomass to a point where you can use it with carbon capture and storage, that's vastly offset by the net removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. And that also gets over some of the issues which you will always have about some, or generally it depends on, on the land use, but quite often in biomass production, you'll have some residual CO2 emissions. Again, in most cases, and obviously the cases you will use, those will be less than the amount of CO2 that you can capture where it's burnt mm. and stored. So what I'm saying is the limits on reasonable use of biomass with carbon capture and storage to give you a net removal from the atmosphere are the availability of biomass itself. It's a, it's a limited resource. It competes with food. It competes with water. But nonetheless, there are places it can be produced. And I think actually a properly managed um, woodland system can be an asset to a landscape. It can be an asset in terms of jobs. Uh, and taking the, the carbon away is much more secure than leaving it in situ. You know, by and large, carbon that's left, or wood rather, that's left lying around will turn into CO2. Mm. Um, and it will do that within... You know, most a century. Well, a century is a blink of an eyelid for the climate. It takes it takes about 10,000 years to remove all of emitted CO2 from the atmosphere. And we've got to look at permanence of uh, carbon lockup for those sorts of times uh, to avoid passing problems onto future generations. So I think, it, as I say, we, we're importing biomass from the United States into the UK at the moment, basically to meet EU targets on, on renewable generation. Um, but there's no reason why we shouldn't look at importing CO2 from Ireland. And you may well, you may well take the point of view that it, it has to be subsidised to do that, but then we do subsidise land management in a lot of ways. And I think funding land management to manage, uh, to provide a, a CO2 removal activity is, is also a reasonable way of doing that. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, John. Okay. Okay. Uh, Patrick, uh, Claire. Thank you, Chair. Um, and thank you, John. I, I really do wish that we had more time for a much longer discussion with you. Um, well, we can, we can arrange that. We can arrange that later, Claire. It's, it's always, <laughs> always welcome. Um, but I just want to focus on this. So, I completely hear what you're saying. Do you feel that it's either more economically viable, problematic, or just important maybe to 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 try? It's about reducing carbon, heading for net zero rather than the date. So whether that be 2045, 2050, 2100, um, it's all about moving towards that net zero. Or, and no, no, the, the dates, the date is important when we get to net zero. Um, as you know, I, I think the means the means are not so important. The date's important because 
oh, sorry, it, the, the amount of CO2 that we've emitted before we get to net zero is important, in a sense, not the date. So the climate science is that the ultimate warming you'll see is a linear function of the cumulative amount of CO2 that's emitted. That's in the latest IPCC report. Um, we, a bit of a plug, we just had a lecture this morning from Miles Allen at Oxford, who was involved in the IPCC reporting, and in fact was quite influential in getting this cumulative carbon message over. Uh, he gave a lecture to uh, civil servants and people for the UK CCSRC, and that will be available on our website. So what's really important, the amount of, the amount of cumulative amount of CO2 that's emitted before we get to net zero, and that's important because if it's more than the amount the climate can tolerate, getting to an acceptable level of warming, then we're putting the burden on future generations of either taking the problem of climate change, which they don't want, um, taking the risks of, of solar radiation management, which I wouldn't want to put on anyone, but it may be the best of a lot of bad alternatives. And then also, even with solar radiation management, they will have to take CO2 out of the atmosphere to stabilize the situation. And that's an unwarranted cost to put on future generations. So it's better to get on with it and do it now. If we are leaving them with that problem, it's actually quite a good idea to develop the technology to the point of maturity as well, so that it's available at a reasonable cost. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave develop, I think it's really, really unfair on future generations to leave, leave developing uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies until they're absolutely needed. Uh, it, it, it's not right. You, you've okay. got to get the cost down now. Yeah, so it's net zero as fast as is possible? No. What I said <laughs> was that, that actually what matters for the climate is how much CO2 is emitted cumulatively before we get to net zero and then what we have okay. to do afterwards. Yeah, so, right. you know, I mean, I, I don't... You, you could get there quickly, but if, if you've emitted a lot of CO2 in getting there, there's a problem. Yeah. It, 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 and you could you could get there slowly. I don't think I don't think it's it's necessarily reasonable to get there slowly, but you could get there slowly and still have relatively low cumulative emissions over that period. I mean, it, it, literally, the science is how much CO2 has gone into the atmosphere, and then because it's cumulative, net zero is only a point in the in the debate. You know, it's it, it, it's you get to net zero, the atmosphere's got a certain amount in. If it's too much, well, you can pull it out again. It's not, you know, you, you will have to pull it out again. That, that's the science. And most of the IPC scenarios for 1.5 at the moment assume that we are going to be pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere in the second half of the century. Yeah. Alyssa, I want to look at the, the so our natural environment, I mean, Northern Ireland doesn't have the capacity, I suppose, to embed a lot of the technologies. Uh, and we do look at the CCC and we do take them very, very seriously. Um, and their trajectory for the UK net zero, um, obviously, as there's a lot of technology being used, geoengineering, and that, that Northern Ireland doesn't have the capacity to embed for a number of reasons. I'm going to assume, maybe this is not your area, but I'm going to assume that the Republic of Ireland are equally as hampered like NI from from taking advantage of those technologies. So, so it's not it's not technology that you need. You you've got the ability. Anybody's got the ability to use the technology. It's geology that's the problem. Yeah. 
you need you need to have a, a sedimentary basin with with basically sandstone layers in it that are porous. They'll they'll hold CO two in the pores, and those sandstone uh, layers need to be sealed with mud, you know, mudstone, a slate like material, or, or salt layers. And in the same way that you don't have natural gas and oil, you don't you tend not to you know you tend not to find that formation. Now there there is some off the south of Ireland, and Cork is looked at being looked at at the moment um, as a possible CCS hub for Republic of Ireland. Um, the other thing you can do if you can't access storage directly with a pipeline because you know it's too far away. You can also look at shipping CO2, and that's being very, very seriously considered. That's the way Norway is handling its CO2. It's shipping it from Oslo uh, around uh, halfway up the west coast. Sweden at the moment is is proposing to do a major cement plant retrofit, shipping the CO2 to the same point. So it is possible. It's just money. Um, having said that, uh, you may not have the large industrial uh, sources. I mean, you don't. But the that would actually merit capturing CO2 and transporting it. And obviously, if you're looking at, at counteracting the effect of methane emissions, that's not a matter of CO2 capture. That's a matter of greenhouse gas removal or CO2 removal from the atmosphere to give you an equivalent correcting effect. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what I'm saying, Claire, I think on the, on the biomass is that it probably is easier to take the CO2 in the form of biomass to a point where it can be used than to, which you could do, uh, use it in, a, uh, say, a biomass power plant in Northern Ireland and then take the CO2 to a point where it can be stored. But that, no, that's, that's something to debate. It may be cheaper. What I really would like to see, I guess, is... You know, you do have the ability to grow things, and where it makes sense, and obviously it won't make sense everywhere, but where it does make sense, at least consider managing the landscape to capture the, the CO2 and biomass, and then look very, very seriously at the permanence with which that CO2 that you've, you've captured is stored long-term, because it does need to be permanent. If it's only stored for 100 years, it's just passing the burden to a future generation. And unfortunately, we are likely to see with warming that CO2 that's locked up in, in landscapes is, is going to disappear. Okay, thank you okay. so much. Yeah. Um, very, that was, thank you, Claire. John, that was extremely interesting and very, very helpful. Uh, so I want to uh, thank you very much for your attendance and um, wish you uh, a a good day run the afternoon here now so thank you john nice okay you. thank you okay uh members can i take agreement to publish the written briefing from um uh, written briefing on the committee's webpage yeah okay members uh we're at item item eight here now it's just a written briefing on the agricultural commodities uh, income support scheme na 2021 page 29 year packs i want to advise members that the rule will be laid before the assembly under the negative resolution procedure as anticipated, they will come into effect in late July or early August 2021. I advise members that the purpose of the rule is to allow the department to make COVID income support payments 
of up to 5.2 million in respect of 80% of total verification losses incurred by pig farmers in respect of culled cows sent for slaughter between the 1st of May and the 31st of March 2021. 80% total verifiable losses incurred by wool producers covering two full production and marketing periods. Uh, 2020 and 21, and potato producers f- to account for 100% of the verifiable losses incurred in 2021. The primary legislation under which the legislation has been made requires a rule to be signed by both the Agriculture and the Finance Minister. So, um, okay, um, are members content with the merits of this policy and agree it should move to the next legislative stage? Great, hope so. I can't see it in the spotlight here, but okay. Uh, thank, thank you for that, members. And I say that uh, I think that's these are a number of items that the committee actually has been lobbying for on behalf of the industry. So, um, just moving now to the next legislative stage. Okay, members, we're on to item number nine here now. It's an oral briefing in relation to the compensation for uh, the farmers impacted by the. Oh, sorry, Rosemary, do you want to come in there on that last item? Rosemary? Yes. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't get my mute button off for some reason. You can yeah. hear me now. Declan, uh-huh. no, I wanted, wanted to ask, in in that there, the, that, the agricultural commodities, to talk about the, the talk about what the December 2019 sheep inventory is, um, it talks about that. Does every sheep owner have to complete one of these? And is it something that's held then centrally by the department, similar to a cattle herd list? Um, perhaps that's something maybe Nick that we maybe get some clarification from from the department on right? Certainly, chair, we'll chase that up with the department and Rosemary whenever we have a response. I'll get back to you directly. Okay, thank you. And just the one last question: When can we expect payment? We often hear of payment promised and payments applied for, but when can we expect it into the bank accounts? Yeah, that's something that's important as well. We will get that timeline as well, Nick. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosemary. Okay, members, there's an oral briefing on the compensation of the farmers impacted by the, the landslides down in the Spurns. The, uh, I want to refer members to the briefing which has been tabled, and I want to welcome by Starleaf Norman, head of Norman Fulton, head of uh, Food and Farming, and Stephen Miller. I'd like to ask you to uh, take um, up to 10 minutes to, to brief the committee, and then members may wish to ask some questions. Okay, Norman and Stephen. Very welcome. Okay, uh, thank you, Mr. Mr. Chairman, uh, and good afternoon, uh, committee. Uh, so, the legislation that you have before you today gives effect to the minister's uh, direction to develop a scheme that would provide uh, a contribution towards the costs arising from the northwest flooding event that uh, occurred in, in August 2017. Uh, so. Uh, you, have, you, know, you have the details in, in your packs, but the scheme provides for three rates of, of payment, and maybe it might be worthwhile just spending a little bit of time uh, in terms of explaining how we've arrived at that. So these are our composite figures. They, they're calculated to reflect uh, our, the wide range of circumstances uh, that impacted the land, damaged by landslide, by deposition, uh, flooding, uh, as well as the, uh, the income loss from the, the, the range of farm enterprises uh, within the areas affected. So the purpose of these calculations really was to try and um, identify uh, and provide a contribution towards the lost income, so in other words, the loss of gross margin, uh, 
because the land was no longer uh, available uh, to produce within the, the time frame. Um, and secondly, it's about restoration. So dealing with uh, the deposition of mainly uh, silt stones, uh, but also debris. Um, and, and secondly, the, uh, the reseeding costs uh, that also would have been incurred uh, once you actually removed that debris. So we have, as I mentioned, three uh, payment rates. Uh, so the, the lowest rate is 145 pounds per hectare. That relates to common land. Uh, that's around about 9% uh, of the total area uh, of land uh, within scope. Um, and that really reflects the, the fact that on that common land, uh, it would have been affected primarily by landslip. Um, and the expert advice was leave it alone, don't touch it uh, and let it regenerate uh, naturally. So there wasn't res restoration cost uh, associated uh, with that type of land. Uh, and therefore, what we're looking at here is the lost gross margin uh, from um, beef and sheep enterprise uh, on that land. And so therefore, £145 per hectare uh, is, is the rate uh, that we would estimate coming from the Farm Business Survey data uh, for that land type. The second rate of payment then uh, is uh, in lowland, uh, similar approach uh, here, uh, a broader range of enterprises uh, reflecting uh, uh, dairy, cattle, sheep, cropping. Um, so again, a composite figure uh, included within that figure of 729 hectares, uh, reflecting lost gross margin uh, from a, primarily a flooding event rather than deposition of debris. But there was a, from the information that we, we have from the force majeure applications, there was a small amount uh, of land that was affected by debris. Um, and therefore, there is an allowance built into that figure. Uh, to deal with uh, debris removal and reseeding. Uh, so that's, that's built into that uh, amount. Uh, and then the largest uh, compensation and the largest area uh, affected uh, was really around the uh, Glenelli uh, Owen Canoe uh, catchments. Uh, and here the rate uh, within this LFA land uh, is uh, £4,092 per hectare. Again, a fairly complex calculation uh, within all of that, um, reflecting a range of, of damage. Um, and to, to help us in, in, in that assessment, we relied really on uh, an on-the-ground survey that was co uh, conducted at, at the time, uh, looking at the, the type of deposition, the depth uh, that uh, was, was actually there. Um, combined this with, uh, and that's a relatively small survey, uh, combined this with uh, an LPS uh, overfly of the area uh, where we have orthophotography again conducted at that stage covering about half of, of the area again enabling us to uh, assess uh, in broad terms the, the, the scale of the, the damage from low medium and high um, and really using that combination of that information plus uh, estimates of the cost of removing uh, the, the debris to come up with a composite uh, figure that uh, included uh, our estimate of the, the average cost of uh, removal of the debris, uh, the cost of reseeding uh, once the debris was removed, uh, and also, again, the lost gross margin uh, from the land. Uh, and here, it's... it's, it's uh, a gross margin that reflect, reflects um, DA as well as SDA land. So again, a composite uh, figure to come to that overall estimate uh, of loss. 
should also say that the, the ortho photography also enabled us to do an adjustment of the, uh, the force majeure applications that were made by uh, farmers. Farmers understandably took a cautious approach whenever they were trying to estimate uh, their, their force majeure uh, declaration. Uh, and what we found from analysis of the, the LPS data uh, was that the, the area that actual where actual damage uh, occurred was generally lower than the force majeure uh, declaration. Uh, so again, a, an adjustment uh, was made to reflect that. So it, it's a, it was a fairly complex uh, set of calculations to come up with those uh, figures. Um, we were very keen to ensure that we had something that uh, was robust, but also straightforward uh, to, to, to implement uh, with minimum bureaucracy for farmers uh, and ourselves. And really, uh, it would have been virtually impossible uh, at this stage with the passage of time uh, and the complexity of the uh, the damage that individual farmers would have so uh, suffered uh, to come up with what would have been a, a bespoke package for each individual farmer. So it's 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 more this broad brush approach, uh, providing a, a contribution towards the, uh, the the losses incurred. So the, the the support will be provided to farmers who made force majeure declarations in 2017. Uh, it will be a simple online application process. Uh, no additional evidence will be will need to be submitted unless there's unless specifically asked for. Uh, but we imagine for the most part, uh, it will be a very simple online application. We will write to farmers, uh, informing them uh, uh, of their eligibility uh, and invite them to make that application. Uh, we would hope that window will be end of July, early August. Uh, short application window, and then we'll process the claims as quickly as possible and, and really try to have it wrapped up um, by, by about September. Uh, so we, we want to move uh, quickly to get this uh, this completed. Um, and we're doing it, uh, uh, as you uh, will see, in a, in a, a fairly pragmatic, uh, straightforward approach um, that doesn't tie farmers up in, in, in endless uh, uh, red tape of trying to uh, delve into their individual circumstances. So that's a, a quick uh, trot through um, and, and happy to take uh, any questions from the committee. Um, thank you for that, Norman. And um, I will say at the outset, um, very much welcome the fact that this scheme has been introduced and because um, I'm very familiar with the issue, um, it's down in the area that I represent and I've, I was down there many times, um, including just shortly after the, the episode happened and seen for myself the huge devastation that it caused to farms and livelihoods and indeed the, 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 the long-term impact it's had and indeed on on farmers' own mental health as well. So I have to say that um, you know, it took, it took a while in coming, but I have to say that it's, that, that, that it's good news for the overwhelming majority of farmers who were impacted by this um, exceptional force majeure um, episode. Um, one thing I will say, Norman, and you probably expect me to raise this because I've been writing to you about this for the last number of weeks, it's just in relation to the... Um, to, well, the first instance, there, there are farmers who didn't have a lot of area damaged, um, but who did have equipment and bales and other items damaged, but which, which have not been covered by insurance because it was a force majeure episode. And I think it's, it's um, regrettable that there is no 
um, bespoke or there's no allowance within the scheme to compensate for those farmers. Like I'm aware of a farmer who, who lost thousands of pounds worth of bales, but that 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 wasn't insured. It wasn't. I couldn't. It wasn't insured because it was force majeure incident. Is there at this late stage, and is there any means or any way where farmers such as that could be? included in the ski scheme those who hadn't big area losses but suffered a lot of equipment and other losses related to their farm businesses and livelihoods yeah well certainly uh, for likes of equipment for example uh, i mean there are insurable losses um, and uh, we, we we really can't get ourselves into a position of um, uh, compensating for insurable loss uh, so that uh, is something we, we simply can't uh, get ourselves involved in uh, beyond that uh, you know with the passage of time four years ago uh, really having any sort of uh, means of capturing that data uh, would be uh, really impossible uh, at this stage um, and uh, and so I mean, it goes back to the purpose here. Uh, it's a package that provides a contribution uh, towards the losses. Um, it's a significant package. Uh, and for comparison, um, the package that uh, was provided uh, in Donegal, for example, it, probably around about half a million uh, was provided. And again, subject to uh, a 15,000 euro cap per business. Uh, we don't have that uh, anymore. Um, and therefore, uh, gives us a significant additional flexibility uh, in terms of the package that we have uh, developed. Um, so I think the package we have is, is as good as we can, we can make it. Um, um, and uh, you know, to, to get down into trying to audit individual circumstances, uh, I think would tie us all up uh, in significant uh, uh, difficulty. Um, and I think the more important thing is to, to get the money out there um, and, and uh, to do it in as pragmatic a way as possible. And see, just on the same point then, Norman, um, obviously the, 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 the compensation is predicated on submission of the force majeure application in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I know the department work, worked hard at getting advertising that so did the UFU and other organizations and native I myself actually printed off many um force majeure forms and distributed them to local shops and post offices and other places. However, I don't recall and I stand to be correct, but I definitely do not recall it ever been said at the time that in order to be eligible for any future um, compensation scheme, you had to fill in the force majeure in twenty seventeen. And also there would have there was farmers who who um who their instinct uh, when their land was inundated as it was their instinct was to roll up their sleeves get down there get the land reclaimed and try to get back to business as best as they could and they incurred a significant loss in doing that there so you know bear in mind the fact that the department has carried out copious uh, assessments of the areas on ground surveys overground LPS overflights surely there's enough evidence already in the department to facilitate the small number or, or, or the number of farmers who, who who didn't submit the force majeure at the, at the time uh, but nevertheless uh, incurred a lot of loss because of um, what happened to them. 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Chairman, as you say, you know, we, we all made significant effort uh, to make sure that uh, people did declare their uh, their land as uh, effectively no longer eligible uh, for cap support, um, and, and uh, so therefore, uh, it really was uh, important, hugely important, not just to protect for a future position, uh, but also to protect at that stage their their cap support payment, uh, because the land was no longer eligible uh, once it was damaged in that way uh, and therefore that was it was essential that they declared uh, force majeure at that point and, and protected their own position um, and to have some sort of retrospective declaration at the stage um, well uh, it would open up uh, issues in terms of well was the land actually eligible for support in 2017 um, and I, I don't think we, uh, we we want to go down that particular uh, route in terms of uh, uh, the data that we hold, uh, yes, we have uh, some survey data on the ground uh, at that stage, by no means covering every field, uh, by no means. And similarly with the, the overflight uh, information from LPS, that would cover only about half the area within that uh, Owen Clue uh, and uh, Glen LA catchment but certainly wouldn't capture any of the information further further downstream. Uh, so we, we don't have complete data uh, from our orthos um, to, to be able to rely on uh, that uh, at, at the stage uh, to, to reverse engineer a, a payment, uh, particularly for areas outside of the force majeure declaration. And Norman, just before I move around to Rosemary and William, I also want to ask some questions. You know, at that time, you know, was the satellite technology available to uh, capture, uh, you know, because you use it obviously for assessing land for single farm payment eligibility. It was, there's no evidence through that as well that would support, um, you know, the, to, to give, um, to help quantify the scale of the damage. Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose it really comes down to the, uh, the clarity and uh, the, the uh, of what you can actually see. Uh, so by far the best you can get is uh, the orthophotography. Um, satellite obviously will depend on, um, you know, cloud cover and all those sorts of issues. Um, but it's also, it's, it's actually trying to discern what you're looking at uh, from, a, from a satellite map. Um, very, very uh, difficult. Um, because what we were looking at here was trying to assess and make judgments around, you know, scale of damage. Um, and that's very difficult to do from the air, um, probably even more difficult to do from space. Um, so uh, we, we've used the best information that uh, really is available to us at this stage. Okay. Thank you, Norman. Um, Rosemary? Thank you, and thank you very much. Um, mine's just in relation to the various levels of uh, compensation that's available and particularly the 729 pound per hectare for the lowland and the 4029 for the for the SDA the hillland mm -hmm. while while I I welcome the whole scheme and welcome this uh, compensation package very much there seems to be a huge, huge difference between those two types of land. And I would have thought, and this is no disrespect to Hillland, anybody, the owners of the Hillland, in comparison to the Lowland, I would have thought that the, the Lowland would have been maybe more, more valuable than the Hillland to a certain degree and had maybe more damage 
damage done to it in relation to a lot of the dumping was done on the lowland and the and the floodplains, that type of thing? Yeah, uh, well, certainly the deposition occurred, I suppose, uh, you might call it the bottom land. Uh, so basically at the... Uh, at down at the bottom of the of the the valley, uh, but yeah. it wasn't it wasn't downstream. So why don't you go significantly downstream um, into the, the actual lowland designation? Uh, there you would have had a flooding event. Uh, absolutely, uh, the debris probably more associated with just things you'll find in a flood. You know, trees and um, milk crates and all sorts of stuff. Um, and we, within the lowland, um, I think it was only two farmers, I think it was, uh, out of 17 actually had uh, within their force majeure uh, any indication of uh, deposition. Um, but whatever you're coming back up into the into the valleys, uh, into uh, Glen Ellie and, uh, and Owen Kalu, that's where you had the real deposition of silts and stones, yeah. rocks. Um, I mean, on average, you know, within our survey, where you had deposition on average, you know, it was around about a foot, uh, but it could have been significantly more, uh, up to three feet uh, of deposition. Uh, and once you have that, I mean, that is a very significant cost in terms of trying to remove that. Major okay. volumes of material to be moved. Uh -huh. But you had the loss of that lowland in respect of grass, uh, for animals, etc. You had that that great loss that those animals on that lowland had to be moved elsewhere. Yep. So that's built into the uh, the figure. Uh, so within that, uh, we are building in a, a, a loss of, of gross margin. Uh, and in the case of uh, lowland, it is just over six hundred pounds per hectare. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a significant proportion of the overall uh, assessed amount. Um, yeah, uh, and that's six hundred pounds before we even make the adjustments uh, for uh, uh, the, the the reduction in uh, between the LPS and the um, uh, and the force majeure area, uh, because the force majeure area was generally significantly larger than the actual area, uh, because farmers were naturally cautious when they were making their declarations. So yes, uh, within that uh, lowland uh, figure, there's a significantly higher uh, income loss figure. Uh, reflecting the nature of the, the crops and the, the grazing, etc., compared with the income loss component within the upland area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So the upland, the upland one is primarily about damage. Yeah. Okay. That that's clarity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, Norman, the, the the fields that you're referring to is the farmers' area referred to them as the home fields. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And uh, you're right, um, I was in the home fields and some of them are buried under four to five feet of, of rubble, which was, which was a whole concoction of silt, uh, carcasses of cattle, sheep, um, fencing, all. It was just, I'd never seen a mess like in my, my, my life. But it's the home fields, so that's a, a new term for some of us. Okay. Uh, William? William? Yeah, have you got all yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I broadly welcome the scheme. I think it's farmers did wait some time, and I know the chairman fought valiantly for, for them, but I mean, it's good that the minister delivered at the end of the day, Declan. Uh, in relation to, um, I, I just heard in passing that you mentioned the 15,000 that the diminishes on the European legislation. Does that mean, or is what you're saying, Norman, 
uh, we can you can pay out more than the fifteen thousand the minister's given that we're out of here. Was that what you're meaning, or did I pick that up wrong? Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Uh, so, uh, well, the, the minimum the limit actually has now been raised uh, within Europe, but because we now operate uh, under uh, a, a different regime effectively, uh, then yes, uh, we, we can uh, basically set that aside. Uh, now, we have established um, uh, effectively an administrative uh, limit ourselves uh, of 106,000. The minister has decided that. Um, so, uh, but yes, uh, we're, we're not constrained by that de minimis limit, which we would have been had we been doing this back in 2017, 2018. Well, that's welcome to you. I'm sure to some of the farmers are the worst affected. In um, relation to the low land and the, the 129 pound, uh, that's per year, I presume? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Per year. That lowland were they able to claim basic farm payment during that time? The war, yes. So again, if they made their their, their force majeure declaration, that effectively protected uh, their their basic payment uh, in that year. That was the purpose of the declaration to make sure that wasn't placed at risk. No, that's one percent. No, no. Again, welcome the scheme is good. That, that you know those affected are getting some compensation. So big help to make sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, um, and 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 fairness, William, you're right. I will I will pay tribute to the minister for making the direction to do this here, and uh, I think it's also important too to pay tribute to the UFU, uh, particularly Victor Chestnut. Victor, uh, when he came in at the last year, he set that out as one of his priorities to try and get the uh, support for those farmers. So it's important to acknowledge, yes, the minister for making the decision, the directive, and indeed the UFU and others for, for adding their voice to, for this as well. Um, Harry? Harry? Thank you very much, Chair. Yep. Thank you, Chair. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Yes, yep. we can. No, I just wondered. Um, thank you, Chair. Norman, was there any conversation had with the NI Drainage Council for going forward at the like of this possibly could be averted and happen again? Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about a, an absolutely exceptional event. Um, I think at the time the ex expert talked about, uh, maybe Stephen, you can remember, I think it was, was it a one in 3,000 year, something yeah, of was, that order? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't think we could have a, an engineered solution uh, that would uh, deal with a, a one in 3,000 year uh, event. Uh, but the, the LUX agency um, um, did do considerable work in the aftermath of that, uh, again, restoring uh, effectively the, the riparian strips and the, and the banks, et cetera. Uh, again, an, an important river, um, part of that uh, tributary, uh, that whole system. And therefore, there was significant works uh, around just restoration of the actual uh, river channel uh, yes. at that time, um, and also um, significant fencing. Uh, off of the of the of the channel uh, again we, we pass money to the lux agency to do that and i think it's um around about 38 kilometers i think have been of, of fencing has been installed uh, oh. again to protect the banks um and uh, the spawning grounds etc uh within that within that system very good so if it was three thousand years ago then Declan, you won't remember the last time it happened <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Uh, I think Harry made a, made a very good point there. Um, that own that uh, the, the the river, the Denali River, the Denali Valley, it's not designated, you know. And, and I think again, it's not the function of DERA to do this, but it's the function of the, the Drainage Council to take a 
a look at um, uh, you know designating that the Lenani River, and I'm glad you mentioned as well the 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 Locks Agency done tremendous work. I think the, this is the best part of a half million pounds spent by a Locks Agency, and there was a lot of work done on the ground there delivering that uh, repairing, for instance, scheme through Seamus Conlon and the other officials who were involved there. And I should also say as well that all of the political parties were you no know, added their voice to this as well. So it was a it's a good a good example sort of uh, of, of of things coming together in the end. But I also I do want to note it uh, wanted noted that. Um, I'm still concerned about the fact that there's there's a number of farmers who had equipment damage and and who didn't submit the force sure that that it's regrettable that they're not that at this stage that they're not included in this particular scheme you know so uh, so um, I don't think I have any other questioners do I? let me see here now I'm trying to get my WhatsApp group going here. Um, okay, but how are you the last speaker? So, okay, thank you, uh, Norman and Stephen. Thank you very much for attending here this morning, this afternoon now at this stage. And uh, no doubt we'll be seeing you. See you. Okay, members. Uh, okay, this policy moves to the next legislative stage. Hope so. Yeah. Okay. Right, members. Um, I uh, item item ten is a written briefing. The waste. Um, oh, battery is expiring. Uh, the waste. Um. Fees and charges amendment regulations NA 2021. It's on page 83 of your packs. The rule will be laid before the assembly on the negative resolution and is anticipated will come into operation on the 1st of August. Members will be aware that in line with the, the polluter pays principle, the NA Environment Agency recovers 100% of its costs in relation to its functions as a regulator of waste activities here. This is achieved largely through receipt of fees and charges set out in waste management charging schemes, which are updated and published on an annual basis. The proposed statutory rule amends reg relevant regulation to give effect to specific charges as set out in the waste management charging scheme NA 2021 by uplifting the relevant fees and charges in line with the, the GD P uh, deflator. Uh, our members content with the merits of the policy and agree it should move to the next stage. Okay. Uh, item 11, uh, written briefing, the Animals, Records, Identification, Movements, Amendment, Regulations, NA 2021. Uh, there's a briefing paper from the department which has been tabled. I will advise members, um, can I advise members that, so are the members, are members content with the merits of the policy and agree that should move to the next Legislative stage. Great. Take silence as agreement. <laughs> Item number 12. Um, we have a written briefing, uh, SR, the sea fishing industry, coronavirus fixed cost regulations, NA 2021. Briefing from the department from and from report from the examiner statutory rules has been tabled. I advise members that the examiner statutory rules considered the above statutory rule and has drawn not drawn any special attention to it. We previously considered the SL1 for this statutory rule on the 10th of June, and the Department has advised that there has been no change in policy content. So the SR is subject to affirmative resolution procedure. Are members okay to recommend that the Assembly affirms this statutory rule? Okay. Members, um, item number 13, uh, written briefing, statutory instrument, the common organization of the markets and agriculture products, regulations 2021. Just to uh, advise that both for items 13 and 14 um, and uh, for item 11, uh, we have been expecting papers to be laid yeah. by the department today, but they have been deferred. Yeah, yeah, sorry, you're right, Mick. I meant to say that they've been deferred, so sorry about that. Yes, just move that on my notes here. 
well, that's been the Fed. So, members, item 15 is correspondence, page 134 of your pack. Want to draw attention to uh, one of the following correspondence from Ulster Farmers Union, page 134. And the committee to a farm business in Castle Derg that is actively engaged in practice to mitigate um, climate change. Um, would members, any members who are available, be uh, content to attend the visit to the farm at some date in August? And if so, um, let, just let um, Nick know and uh, he can uh, arrange this. And have to say that's in West Tyrone, so you'd be getting great hospitality and a great part of the world to come visit. Um, correspondence from the Dairy Council at page 202, inviting the committee to a virtual site visit to hear about the sustainability of the dairy supply chain. The invitation has also been extended to the Economy Committee and suggested date of the 8th July at 1.30pm which is our last meeting before the summer recess. Are members okay for the arrangements for the virtual site visit to be made by the committee team in conjunction with the economy committee? Rosemary, are you coming in there? Rosemary? Yes, please. I'm sorry, mine's actually in relation to correspondence for the Ulster Beekeepers Association. Okay, oh, sorry, Rosemary, go ahead, yes. Yeah, um... It's it's just um, I'm a bit concerned about you know the 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 beekeepers and we've had a lot of we've had a lot of correspondence with them and there doesn't seem they don't seem to be getting any satisfaction from the from the answers that they are getting and especially this in relation to these um, these bees coming in the last consignment that came in have not been checked that type of thing is there any yeah. Update that. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that maybe we note that there and um, make more representation to the department on raising that. Would that be fair to say, Rosemary? Yep. Yeah. Nick, you, you noted that there, yeah. Chair, yes, that's uh, that's the if that's the agreed action. We will write to the department mm -hmm. uh, seeking clarity on that issue specifically. Yeah. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for that. And members, are you okay to uh, that we action? The rest of the correspondence is suggested in the index page at page 132. Members okay with that? I think so. Forward work programme, that's at page 205. Can members agree to the forward work programme? Okay. Thank you for that. And the final thing is, uh, um, before uh, adjourn, is if members of many of our business, uh, you can raise it now, or you can raise it now. Um, okay. Okay, members. Then the next meeting will be on Thursday, the 1st of July. We'll be into the new month at 10 a.m. and will be a hybrid meeting streamed on the Assembly website. So thank you very much, members. And I will see you across the chamber or in the corridors next week. And, uh, and good luck to you and stay safe. Okay, bye now. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.